This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 400, yes, 400 episodes of the Behind the Shield podcast, and this week it seemed only fitting to welcome back my Truck One crew from Anaheim, Terry, Joe, and Rich. So we originally sat around on episode 162, and with this being a very taxing year for so many, some lost loved ones, some lost businesses... I wanted to end on a positive note. I didn't want to have a kind of FU 2020 episode because despite some of the traumas, despite some of the challenges, there have been a lot of good. And, you know, we have the gift of life. So that's something we have to be incredibly grateful for. So I wanted to bring another insight, another uh, chance to experience what I consider a very cohesive crew. So I've worked for 14 years, worked with a multitude of crews, some great, some not so great. But this dynamic, these men, the leadership of Terry, the brotherhood of, of, of all of them, you know, what they've shown since they were at my wedding. Um, I, I left there 12 years ago. So really kind of underlines the bond that we formed. And it was a powerful conversation. Joe was in ICU with COVID-19. So we discussed that. Um, Joe and Rich experienced some PTSD. Uh, they both have injuries they're battling at the moment. Uh, Terry talks about his early calls that stuck with him to this day. We talk about fitness standards, training standards, hiring standards. So a huge amount of truth bombs, um, lots of feelings that were hurt. If you are a sensitive soul, just press stop now and go listen to something else. It's not offensive to you, but there's a lot of banter. Um, but it is real and it is raw and it is what a firehouse should sound like. Male, female, you know, whatever dynamic it is. This is the kind of, uh, friendly banter. Like I said, things that some people call hazing, which is complete crap. Um, but are just a raw insight to the absolute pinnacle, the joy of my career. So before we get to that interview, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Hit subscribe, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every rating, especially five-star ratings, truly elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return 
is that you pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Terry, Joe, and Rich. Enjoy. So we're here at Anaheim Truck One, the crew that I was with when I was here out in California, sitting down again. I forget the number. I think it was 156 that we did last time. Um, so we're sitting around again, having some beers and uh, reminiscing and hopefully pulling out some more lessons learned from our time here. So icebreaker, COVID. Oh, you got a limp one over there. Yeah, there that mic go. just dropped on me. Squeeze it a little bit. It makes it firmer. There we go. I'm a little bit, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. You just did it. <laughs> so with the COVID thing, obviously it's affected all of us, but Joe, my engineer, um, you had your own pretty severe journey through this COVID experience. So tell me about prior and then, you know, your your journey through and then out the other side. Well, when I first, uh, when the pandemic hit, I was off of work. I had a meniscus tear, had surgery. Um, on St. Patrick's Day, and shockingly enough. um, So I was off of work until uh, beginning of May, or yeah, but beginning of May, end of April or so. Came back to work right when the pandemic was really taking off. Uh, A lot of things had changed within the department as far as like no more uniforms, whatever you're wearing out out in the field stays down on the app floor so it's just pretty much shorts and t-shirts um that must have been nice cleaning our it's still like that now <laughs> was but, nice. cl- cleaning our boots <clears throat> with uh with a bleach solution down on the app floor um taking our temperature a couple of times a day logging it uh sending it in at the end of every shift um then even on reports you know logging any covid exposure so we've got a multiple patients, and it's, it was increasing, you know, pretty much it seemed like every every shift, uh, especially at the uh, convalescent homes. So we got to a point where we we're asking the convalescent homes to bring the patient out because they had these COVID wings, which it almost looked like a scene from uh, ET. You know, the whole thing's wrapped in plastic, and the, all the uh, staff is wearing spacesuits. Did you have to watch a flower the whole time? What's that? You have to watch a flower, a potted plant. Pretty much. It was pretty, uh, <laughs> it was a little different, you know. So coming back to that environment is a little strange. You know, we're wearing the Tyvek suits, a lot of us on calls. Um, so the whole approach was strange. Um, come the end of May, uh, one of my firefighters started exhibiting symptoms, saying he didn't feel well, had a temperature of 100 degrees. So by protocol, we sent him home, called in a relief. Um, two days later, I got a phone call that he was positive for COVID. <clears throat> I felt fine. Um, but within a day after that, by Monday, I was feeling really achy, had a temperature, maybe like 100, 101, nothing bad. Um, no shortness of breath, anything like that. that was the severe things that they would talk about that you'd want to go to the hospital for. Um, by Wednesday night, Thursday, um, body aches, um, temperature of 105, 
Um, I was coughing up blood. Uh, so I was like, okay, this is not good. Um, took my, went to the hospital, um, went to UCI. They, I'd gone on Tuesday because I was a little worried because I was starting to feel a little bit of pain in my chest. Everything was fine on that Tuesday. <clears throat> uh, I think that was the 2nd of June. And they said, your lungs are clear. Uh, your oxygen levels are fine. Just monitor yourself at home. Uh, when I went back in on Thursday after coughing up blood, my lungs were starting to fill already with uh, fluid. And my uh, I was, they call it silent hypoxia, where I felt like I was breathing okay, but my oxygen levels were in the 80s. So they admitted me into the into the uh, hospital, and uh, by the next day I was in ICU. Um, my oxygen stats were gone as low into the 70s. Um, it was like I kind of equated to trying to exercise while breathing through a straw. You cannot get enough oxygen and uh, get hypoxic right away. Just moving from your bed to a seat, you get hypoxic, couldn't catch your breath. Um, it was very scary because you're in there by yourself, no visitors, nurses and doctors are coming in with <clears throat> their spacesuits on. There's no answer. You ask a bunch of questions, they don't have an answer for you. They don't know. They don't know. Yeah. Um, they gave me a bunch of blood thinners because I never did a whole lot of research about it um, until I actually got it, uh, that it, caused, it causes blood clots. Uh, so they were worried about get me getting a clot and getting a PE or throwing a clot somewhere. So they were giving me blood thinners twice a day. Uh, it was starting to affect my livers, liver and kidneys. It was My numbers on my blood draw were um, getting out of whack. So they gave me a clinical trial remdesivir, which I signed for the day I was in the ER. I felt so so bad that you know pretty much you sign anything. Anything that's going to work, anything they can give you. Um, I mean, there was the body aches were so bad that the stuff that we normally take, like ibuprofen or um, anti-inflammatory, did nothing. They had to give me a narcotic just to kind of get the pain down. It just felt like my joints, everything were going to explode. Every time I cough, it felt like my head was going to explode. I mean, literally felt like I was going to have a stroke. It was terrible. Um, so they put me on a CPAP machine, which was pretty much high flow oxygen through a nasal cannula, like around, I don't know, it felt like maybe 50 liters per minute, just blowing in just to keep your airway open. That was kind of last resort before being put on a, a ventilator. I was the only patient that was up there at the time that wasn't on a ventilator in the ICU. Everybody else around me was on a vent. Um, so I consider myself pretty fortunate. Um, every day they come in, they really didn't have an answer of, you know, progression, recovery, nothing. I mean, they were starting to tell me that you got to look at the possibility that one, be happy that you're alive. And two, you might not ever be able to go back to work, the job that you're doing before. Um, and I was, I, had, I came to peace with that, um, because I felt so bad. Um, when I was in there, I was in there for four weeks. Um, when they let me out, I had to pretty much, it was almost like sending an AMA. I had to kind of beg him to let me go because I, I was over it. Mentally, it's a, 
it, it just messes with you, you know, because you have no interaction with anybody. Luckily, you have, you know, FaceTime and uh, whatnot, but it's not the same, you know. And the guys from the stations were coming by, um, come by the window and, and wave from the outside. But I would get so like, hypoxic that just walking to the window would drop my sats into the 60s. So, yeah, because even when I called you, you were struggling to breathe just on a phone call. Yeah, and uh, you can't catch your breath. It takes a very long time. So when I was able to get out of there, they uh, sent me home with home oxygen. And uh, I was on that for three months and slowly was able to wean myself off. Probably pushed myself a little bit more than I should have, but I wanted to test my limits and see where, you know, I'm, my goal is to get back to work. I didn't want to be in desk duty for 10 more years that I had left on the job. So, you know, they uh, gave me physical therapy. They call it work conditioning therapy. Um, I was exercising on my own. Um, but it, it took a while just to kind of be able to get your lung function back to somewhat normal. When I saw a pulmonologist um, a month after I got out of the hospital, my lung function was only at 48%, uh, which is nothing. Um, but I was able to walk. I was still on home oxygen, but I was on less liters per minute, um, and I wouldn't get so hypoxic anymore. Uh, a month after that, it came up to 68%. So I was feeling a lot better. I was off the oxygen. And then this past, in October, uh, it was somewhere up in the 90s, and I got released, come back to work. Now, what did they do to strengthen your actual respiratory muscles? Because that was something that I've had a conversation with a couple of people, including my dad. And he's like, that's another thing that doesn't get discussed, is there are tools we can use to improve people's breathing strength that will probably help, you know, offset some of that um, edema and, you know, secretions that they have. So they gave me a tool called the incentive spirometer in there and what you have to do is inhale and um so remember we used to do those uh vo2 max test you blow in to see what your max lung capacity was this one is inhaling to see how much capacity your lungs could hold so you, you have to do that multiple times a day you know try to get it in you know a couple hundred repetitions if you will in a day and it's exhausting when you're short on air to begin with it's it's exhausting um i remember the first time they gave it to me and it's a very slow breath it's not like you inhale fast it's a very slow breath and um first time i did it i think my max was maybe 500 uh cc's mm -hmm. which is nothing you know um you know the normal people were between 3,000 to 5,000 mine was only at 500 but doing it over and over, what that does, it forces your alveoli open. So it pushes all that fluid out. So that was the main thing to do uh, to help build your... Uh, I have a question. Would you get exhausted just from doing that? Was it like, I, have you never been through this? Are you doing it and you feel like your lungs are burning like you're out of breath? Or like if you were doing a superset or repping out on something? Like what is that feeling like trying to do that? Imagine your lung capacity for someone who was a cardio athlete that they just, whatever lung capacity you had was down to a quarter. 
So the amount of air that you're able to inhale before is down to 25%. So when you're breathing in or inhaling on that, is it like burning in your chest or does it just feel like, well, this is as far as I can go? This is as far as you can go. You can't take, you, you know that you could take in more, but the fluid in your lungs, the, 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 the constriction just will not allow it. So it's literally, you can pass a quarter of the air through your trach than what you normally would. Cause it just won't go into your lungs cause there's too much fluid in there. Well, or? Yeah. It's cause of the fluid. So you, what you're inhaling is just, that's it. So it's not going in. So that's what's interesting with the prevention side, whether it's like I had Bas Rutan on, he's got a thing called the O2 trainer, which is a breathing trainer. Um, and then, you know, you think about most more endurance or cardio style workouts, you know, CrossFit, whatever, you have that increase of breathing, well, even posture, you know, the way mm-hmm. you change your posture. And if you work on the back health stuff, that, that improves your lung function. But again, you know, that's never in the conversation. Now, it doesn't mean it would have stopped in any way, shape or form what you went through, but the average person can increase their, or decrease their symptoms, probably increase their recovery purely just on respiration health well taking just one one thing that I, I i'm a paramedic and even you know kind of goes against the things that i had learned was uh they would lie people on their stomach because your lungs is the, the way they are your anatomy is you have your lower lungs sit more closer to your back so when you lie on your back you're actually constricting that isn't it muscular dystrophy when they they have to do that for the the patients. They smack them on the back. Cystic yeah. fibrosis. Oh, that's Cystic right. fibrosis. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they do the. Um, <clears throat> Not a paramedic. <laughs> um, they uh, what do they call it? They they have a machine. It's almost like a they, like a theragun. Yeah, like a, they're clapping on your back, and uh, it's supposed to break up. But the thing with the COVID, it doesn't break up. It's it's you, it's a dry. Your lungs are filled, but it's a dry cough. It's not a. So it's cough. like thick. It's not phlegm that's in you. It's not like fluid, like if you had like altitude sickness or yeah, it's, okay. and it doesn't come up. It's it's like stuck in there, so you can keep coughing and coughing, and nothing nothing comes up or very little. Is that where the blood comes from? You just tearing things up by yeah. coughing too much. Yeah. Right. So, um, so they they gave me that that therapy. They uh, it didn't do much. Um, I think the only thing that did anything for me was just time. You know, there was no magic, anything that was going to work. Nah, slow absorption of all the secretions, basically. Yeah, because they showed me the chest x-ray, and it was, the doctor was pretty surprised, my attending physician that took care of me there, that he actually asked for a copy of my, he was doing a report on my case, uh, a case study, uh, because he didn't think I was going to recover. Did he he tell you that? Yeah. (laughs) He told me he thought he didn't I don't want to be like glass half empty, but I think you're fucked to be honest. No, well, he told me he told me after the fact that when I had already was improving, that he didn't think I was going to recover. So, um, you know, they were talking about uh, you know issues that could arise like um, uh, fibrous tissue, like a cystic fibrosis, where your lungs are just nothing but scar tissue, or it prevents you expanding. So. You know, this is the time, I think, and just having the will and the drive to steadily improve and not give up, you know, was a big help. Having that positive reinforcement from people around you was a big help as well. But it's definitely a daunting task because, you know, it's a, it's a roulette. You don't know if you get it, are you going to get it really bad or are you going to get it just like common cold? Yeah. 
and uh, they don't have an answer. Did you lose your sense of taste and smell like other people have? I lost my uh, big portion of my sense of smell. So, you know, it's it's coming back slowly, but it's nothing like, you know, someone would say, oh, I smell this. Like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Is that a crazy thing, like walking around and not smelling things? Well, I'll tell you what the crazier thing is, is and it, I would become very forgetful. This things like, you know, leaving, I can't find my keys, you know, simple things, but happening often and often. Forgetting names, you know, talking to somebody that you know, and all of a sudden you forget who they are. Were you sleeping well at night? No. When I was in so the hospital? that's probably where that came from. No, right? they call it COVID fog. So with their, what happens with their sense of smell being gone or sense of taste, it's the sensories in your in your brain that also causes that, they call it a fog, where you, it just memory lapses. Yeah. Uh, had nothing to do with the lack of sleep or anything. I sleep well now. and I've. But you, you say you didn't in the hospital, though. In the hospital, I was in the um, ICU. You can't. Yeah, exactly. If you've never been in the ICU, it's, it's impossible. ICU, ICU psychosis because everything's pinging and there's lights the whole time and people well, are checking that. on I you. I can sleep through that. It, that. That was not a problem. It's them being in there every two hours. Checking your blood pressure and all checking, that. Or mm-hmm. taking blood or something like that where you can't get a full night's sleep. And you're almost afraid to go to sleep because of your oxygenation. It's, you become, you, it's like drowning. You panic. You know, it's like you, you can't get enough oxygen. And it happened a couple of times where I became, they said when I was sleeping, became apneic. So they hooked me up to that CPAP at night too. So just to keep my airway open uh, and sleeping pretty much straight up upright. It's like CHF. Yeah, pretty much. Is it, has it helped you though, having no sense of smell surviving firehouse dorms? Yeah, I don't have to smell the petting <laughs> too, but I think my dorm is probably the worst one of all. So. <laughs> There you so, go. Yeah, I wallow in my own stuff. So, but yeah, that was that was my experience with it, and uh, you know, the, I consider myself very fortunate. You know, I definitely could have been a lot worse. I did have a cousin that passed away from COVID out in Arizona, and uh, family friend who lost a uh, brother mm-hmm. to it as well. So, you know, not all the outcomes are have been great for everybody. So. You know, I consider myself pretty fortunate. Not once did I ever think I would get it to this degree. Um, but I guess on the plus side of it now, I mean, I did get the antibodies. <laughs> yeah. So that's one way to get the antibodies. So, but it doesn't mean you can't get it again. You know? Is there a, an official number that we have for guys in the department who've had it? Um, Do we know yet? I don't know. Uh, last I checked, it was over 10 in a department of just under 200 people. Yeah, I don't know. I know there were seven of us at the same time that got it, and then I heard, you know, a few. There was, okay, so most of the people listening to this won't know, but Joe, you're about the biggest, strongest guy that I've ever met, and the other guy that was really, really affected by this on our department uh, wound up on a ventilator, and you two are easily the biggest, strongest guys we have in the department and it was i have to say at first i wasn't that worried about it because i've said like i've made good decisions my whole life and not smoked have you though well health decisions yes (laughs) um but i've lived a good clean healthy life and i never really worried about it and when i saw you and one of the other guys get flattened by this that was scary 
and texting with you sometimes like I could tell like the usual what do you want to call it the snappiness that you had or how quick you are and the wit it was gone I mean it's still not back yet but um <laughs> it might be a, it, was, it might be a, <laughs> it's a bit delayed it I might think. be a permanent deficit but it was it was among other things scary like <laughs> I we would text or talk on the phone and I would get done and I would have a lump in my throat and tears running down my cheeks because I was honestly I was worried if I would ever see you again so that, and that I guess that for me was a taste of my own mortality because if it could flatten you then well it would have a field day with me I guess <laughs> you're like a killer whale with a seal dude to be tossing you around well it feeds on testosterone so you would have been fine yeah I'd have been fine then <laughs> Listen more to chasing estrogen. <laughs> I, I've got a question for both of you guys. Mm-hmm. With the uh, good chance that there's going to be a shot for this, will the department mandate that you guys all take that Im- has, immunizations? That hasn't been brought up, but I could see that happening. Well, I mean that we we when I was there, we had to take f- f- you know flu shots every year. Yeah, we still do. And we had to do the boosters for the... Uh, the hep B and all that. Hep, yeah. hep A. Yeah. A and B. I think... Uh, I know first responders are going to have the first shot at... Yeah, at absolutely. The, ...the vaccine. Um, but I definitely see that happening. We had a couple of guys doing the clinical trials with it already. Really? Yeah. So what's the mood? Is, I mean, with the guys at work, are they... Well, I think it's been going on for so long now that a lot of, uh, I'll just be blunt, a lot of guys have put their guard down again. Even no, no, I mean, I mean, as far as what the immunization goes. Um, it hasn't been brought up yet because it's nothing that's been definitive. So, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, yeah, Pfizer and who's the other one out there? Is it? Amogen? Yeah, I forgot the other one that has the. Uh, it's Amogen. Um, but I know, I know there will be a lot, a lot of guys willing to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think they're going to see it out in another month or two. Yeah, yeah, I think they said by the for the general public sometime in the first of the year. But yeah. I definitely want. But to you, get, you guys, would you go and get that? Having had it already, if I need to, no, because I have the antibodies the, now. The, the, the department's going to probably require that everybody gets it, just like they did the Heptavax. You didn't have an option. Well, the thing is, from what I've heard, the technology hasn't been verified. Like the antibody tests have been shown to be awful because I think my dad was was hypothesizing is that your original sample size was everyone in the ER in the ICU. So the you know the inflammatory level or the, you know, the virus level was at a certain height, and now you're getting like no one's showing up on antibody tests that I know. So did they set that you know number f- far too high? And as it slowly diminishes in the body, people that had it in January, February, March, whenever, are not even showing up now. So yeah, and I've heard that the even just the regular COVID tests are not as reliable as people think either. False positives, false negatives. Well, when I got so, out of the hospital, because mm-hmm. um, you rushed it, I got t- I tested negative, and then um, around mid July, I took another test. I tested positive. And then I took it one a week later and I tested negative. Mm, so exactly. it's up and down. But with someone that's had it, there's a virus shedding. That could take months. And during that time you could still test you could still test positive, but not be contagious. Exactly. 
So there's right. a lot of confusion there. And what yeah. worries me is that we, we've had a flu shot for decades and mm-hmm. we still haven't got it right. How do we know that we got this right in this vaccine? I don't think anything's going to be 100%. Exactly. But so think, when you're talking about mandate, you know, mandatory, you know, now you're starting to tread in waters. Well, you don't know if it's as safe as the other vaccines that we... Well, yeah, it isn't contested now with some of them. You know, is it connected to other things? We don't know. But, but that, this has been rushed so much. It kind of, I question the science behind it. Well, tell you what, for me personally, having gone through what I've gone through, I don't wish that on anybody. And if a vaccine has a possibility to prevent that, I would definitely take it and I would I would recommend it to others because it was the most difficult thing I ever had to face where you face your own mortality, where you don't know if you're going to get out of the hospital. Um, take for advantage, like if we go on calls and people say, I'm having trouble breathing. I've had trouble breathing. I have a lot of empathy for someone that tells me they're having trouble breathing if it's legitimate. Yeah. Because it <laughs> is there. one of the scariest things you can face. It, I get kind of equated like, uh, like I said, trying to breathe through a straw while running. Or if you're down deep in the water and you're running out of air trying to reach the surface, it's just, it's a panic. You cannot get enough. And then it almost causes, you know, anxiety. Which, well, almost it does cause anxiety because you can't get those oxygen levels up. So, you know, I don't wish that on anybody. And I consider myself someone that's fortunate to have gotten through it. Um, but I don't wish, I, if, if there's a way to avoid getting it, I would definitely recommend at least considering it. Well, my, I mean, one of the things that I've talked about a lot is never, ever downplaying the virus. And we have anomalies that had no health conditions. We have people, for example, one of our guys that just was recovering from a traumatic injury, an infection. So obviously that is a pre-existing issue. Um, but the the diabetes, the obesity, the hypertension, all these things that we know are well, really that's what me is the, you know, Obesity? Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. Like There's been no conversation about all those that we can fix, whether it's individually, whether it's as a nation. We're not talking about changing the way we're farming, changing what we feed the kids in schools, any of that stuff. So that's what gets me with the vaccine. That's an easy, supposed quick fix pill. What about all the stuff that, regardless of a virus, will still make our people healthier and stop them dying from strokes and cancer and heart disease and everything else? That conversation is not just being not had, it's, it's not being gonna, suppressed. It's not going to happen. It's heresy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think right now this, they're focused. It's not going to happen because... All those, he, all those diseases haven't affected the economy like this has. The insinuation is you're telling me that I'm fat. And that, no one's telling you that, Terry. And that uh, he's telling Joe that he's fat. Yeah, well, but, <laughs> but, 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 but the minute you have it with society, big boned. you are uh, you're treading on very thin ice because that's being mean, James. But I mean, even systemically, though, there's a lot of people making a shitload of money on on pharmaceuticals, do, on do, do, agriculture. Do you, do you remember what happened when uh, Michelle Michelle Mybell changed the food at school? I think she tried to, and then the lobbyists shut her down. Actually, no, she, what she, she changed the foods at school, and the kids threw the food in the trash can. Oh, so we listen to a bunch of kids now, what we serve no, in the schools? No, I mean, they, they would shoot the kids that's, calling the shots. I think mm-hmm. that's my point is... You've got to give it time, though, you know what I mean? But it's, gotta, it's also got to come, we've got to realize now is that, you know, all those things have a long-term effect on people, have a long-term effect on health care costs and... 
we're dealing with something that's affecting the economy. It's affecting people right now and they need to get under control right now. But it's been like eight or nine months. Imagine the dent you could have made on the ill health of the nation in almost a year while we're also isolating and wearing masks and washing our hands and all that stuff. But we're talking about would have, should have, could have. No, I've talked about it from fucking day one. But you have, a lot of people have. Are we allowed to say four-letter words on this? Yes. Yes. Oh. But, you know, it's it's, what's interesting, James, is it's kind of uh, what you're talking about, people when they were in true lockdown they sold more bicycles you couldn't keep bicycles in the shop people were riding yeah. bikes every day they were looking for toilet paper could not buy home workout equipment you no. couldn't buy anywhere couldn't buy a peloton you couldn't buy a bicycle any bicycle they had in the in the, in the shop was on it was gone mm-hmm. so people actually when they had nothing else to do a lot of people did resort back to more activity. Some people did. Probably well, the people that were working they out. they couldn't exercise, everyone said, Screw I you. need to exercise. <laughs> and they all went and bought stuff. And they, they, they got tired of their bicycles. Now they sell it on you know Craigslist for like double the price. Because mm-hmm. I'm one of the suckers that bought three of them for oh, really? <laughs> me and the boys. You need three? Well, like, well <laughs> one of these legs. It's like a dually. You have like a triple E with the back. I have a picture of James. It's like a two-wheeled trike. I have a picture of James, and it smiles for me. And it makes it reminds you to slow down for traffic. <laughs> Actually, your teeth look nice. Thank you. I've been told I got the yeah. best teeth, English teeth in America. They're American. That was yeah. my That's dentist that told you that, huh? Uh, no, it was a guy in Fort Lauderdale. I mean, where is it? Miami area. Was he cute? Yeah, he was. Yeah, I bet. told him that these these things are sharp and don't even think about mm-hmm. it. Oh, they're nice. So. <laughs> they're good chompers. Terry, take yours out so we can see him. Oh, come on. <laughs> Sorry, Terry. I couldn't help it. No worries. So, yeah, we, when, you know, what I wrote about in the book, and this isn't a shameless plug by any means, but is like, regardless of a virus, in the same period that we had like seven months, when you look like 2019, we lost half a million people to smoking related and obesity diseases. You know what I mean? So when the talent the numbers are not addressing those numbers as well individually and organizationally and you know statewide and nationally then we're doing a disservice and you're really there's no there's no um meat to your argument because you didn't care about lives before and now all of a sudden we're supposed to listen to you we should listen to you and i listened and did everything i was asked wore the mask quarantined all that stuff so in lieu of us telling us you know what to do and we also be in it can you please also address some of these other issues that are killing our men and women that we the fire service and ems get to see every day these sack full of meds that you told were going to save their lives and they didn't how many of those diseases are self-imposed oh most of them most of them absolutely and the covid isn't yeah. But I mean, no, but but neither COVID, is Ebola, neither the, is flu, COVID neither is MRSA, neither any looks of these for the, ones, yeah. you know? It looks for the advantage. Mm-hmm. It, it, it looks for weakness. It, it throws out and it, and it says, oh, look what I've got here. I got a chubby Mexican guy. And the next thing you know, yeah. shut down. up, Dickie. <laughs> Speaking of weaknesses, somehow it knew you. <laughs> I'm surprised how it bypassed hey, you. Hey, us skinny African immigrants have fed pretty damn well. So... <laughs> But you're right, though. It's 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 not one or the other. It's both. That's my yeah. point. People argue that like, no, no, we're talking yeah. about simultaneously. There's a disease that we need to be very careful of and isolate it's, the it's weak a, and all that stuff. But at the same time, 
let's get everyone healthier. And I think the people buying the bikes were maybe somewhat scared and probably a lot of the people that were already working out that their gyms were closed. They could go to Chick-fil-A anytime, but their gyms were closed, so they had yeah. to work out in their own right. house. I look at it from a personal level because, you know, I work out all the time. Mm-hmm. And you got people that choose. <laughs> Dickie's spelling the face. <laughs> Where yeah. exactly? Hometown buffet? Just because your right forearm is big, that doesn't mean you work out. Actually, you're right. That just means you're, you're I don't know why my right one is bigger. <laughs> your arm just looks like a whole lot more buff than the other one. <laughs> I don't. Quarantine. I don't kiss and tell. So yeah. vascular. Hey, what do you expect if we're quarantined? Mm-hmm. But, oh, I'm sure tissue sales went up too. <laughs> So did lotion. lotion. <laughs> <laughs> we got off track here. Um, I bet you, well, not I bet you, I think it would have been an interesting study if that while they quarantined everyone and shut everything down, if they shut down fast food places too, I wonder what the impact on the general health of the U.S. population would have been. That and cigarette sales, that would have been a tough one. They didn't close no. one pot shop. That's Okay. They didn't. They didn't shut down any WalMarts. They clearly picked the winners and the losers. Terry, and still obviously, are. we need to be able to buy our vape pens and buy shotguns. So these no, are there was plenty of gun shops that got shut down, but not Walmart. They probably sold out before though. We tried to buy ammo today. It was. I mean, we oh, you can't go. Oh, that you was can't, ridiculous. Today. You can't. You can't get it in California. What were you thinking? One of the gun ranges we went to. They wanted. What did they? So we had to bring our own ammo or? Was, yeah, $40 per 50 rounds of 9 mil. Yeah, it was a little yeah. steep. Yeah. Were you telling us after? Well, I didn't know I wasn't invited. Well, we didn't want to invite you because you have to hold the gun upright when you shoot. Like I can't do like this? Us. Yeah. Would you do throw sticks? Actually, I was pretty damn good. <laughs> it was kind of embarrassing and taking those spears into the range. Yeah, though, say, say. It probably doesn't work so well over there. You know, it's like telling the dude, they're like, hey, I don't know anything about guns, but I want one. So what does this thingy do? That and is, is this a cool a one? Or- scary <laughs> thought. I asked the guy, am I a grass skirt? Is even allowed in there? Did he allow it? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. You really don't think that they're going to uh, entertain the idea of telling people that they should be healthier when they can't even address... <clears throat> The downside of uh, mental illness, uh, people suicide, yep. alcoholism, child epidemic. abuse, all the things that they've induced into society that they refuse. When somebody does bring it up, they will not talk about it. Do you think, this is something I've kind of found now, do you think that we're sitting next to a guy who went through it almost died? So I'm not downplaying it at all, but overall, numbers wise, Versus what they were touting at the beginning, which was double figures, you know, not point, actual double figures, that it's so much less of an impact than they were feeling that there's a fear of saying we were wrong. And we were wrong means that's great news. Like we're not all going to die. But I feel like there's almost a a fear of saying it's not as bad as we thought. So we're just going to, you know, kind of start unwinding again. No. Sorry, we just break that. Joe, you're an asshole. <laughs> They're texting each other while we're talking. Well, I just said, Terry, that's. He's not going to be able to see that. Oh, that's very true. I'll draw a picture and see if I can log Draw it. a picture. There's a photo of a genie, and he sent that to me and said, This is your emoji because you have the same legs because they don't have legs. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a genie coming out of a lamp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A little lamp. Very a little lamp. Very <laughs> a little, little lamp. lamp. Articulating legs. 
Sorry, no, I, I, I think James, you know, it's like everything in government. Um, I, since I worked for them for so many years, I distrust them greatly. So, so if you're asking me to He's believe, a boogaloo, dude. <laughs> if you ask He's me, the boogaloo asking me bit. to believe that there's 250,000 people that have died from this in our country right now, I would say no, there's not. When you when you give money to hospitals, yeah, and almost incentive. You incentivize the- them to assign that as a deaths on their on their certificate when they do pass. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. How many people have died? A significant number of people have died in this yeah. country. There's and each one is too many. Absolutely. absolutely, there's no doubt about it. But it is it is a really strange virus in that it, it you know, predominantly it goes after the old people, predominantly. But then there's once in a while you'll you'll see the anomaly where it, it kicks the shit out of some guy that's an ER doctor or a, a nurse that's in really great health. But they but they're not because they're working shifts. And that's my thing. I did a video at the very beginning of this. No, but the they, firefighters, but, but, the but police But they're officer. not. But the, these people aren't necessarily. They don't fall into the obese or, no, but or they're, COPD. But they're immunocompromised because of their sleep deprivation, because of their job. And that's the thing that people don't think point, about. Point being, point being is, the thing goes after mass numbers of people that are in poorer health. But along the way, it does take a righteous person with them, mm-hmm. and that's the weird thing about it. But that was times? not Joe, for the record. No, he said righteous. Yeah, I'm righteous. So okay. that's you're back you know, in your lamp. <laughs> and it's and it's and it's one of those things. It's like this is probably some flipping hybrid virus that's somebody's been working on for the last ten years. Or it's come from horrible animal practices. I mean, we need to learn the lesson that Mother Nature's taught us too. Because um, these wet markets. I mean, look at mad cow disease. Mike, I can't give blood to this day. Because uh, no, uh, but if you're HIV. from England, oh, I you had no, it's, mouth. it's not HIV. Oh, okay. it's bovine HIV. I thought it was foot and mouth. <laughs> but yeah, because of that, and that was from them grinding up dead cows and feeding them the cows, cows that are herbivores. So lo and behold, Mother Nature was like, "Yeah, this isn't going to work," and you know the BSE kind of emerged for a while. But you know, and then you look at the the avian bird flu. I mean, you can trace all these back to really shitty, unnatural you know, health practices and people living too close together, cholera and all these things, they're all from us, either animals or people being crammed in the density that doesn't exist naturally on planet Earth. Well, this one seems to have a lot of coincidences. A lot of coincidences. I don't know. Hmm. But then again, like I said, but then we're sitting next to Joe, who's had it. So, I mean, to yeah. hit through his lens, it's completely real and there's no... No, no, it's real. It Don't get me wrong. It is flipping real. But it's, it's, not, it's, it's not yeah, like any other... Terry thinks it's man-made. It's not like any other virus that we've ever experienced. I don't know if you listen oh, to yeah, it. Well, I mean, well, it te- was well Terry was around for the Spanish flu. Yeah. So yeah. he remembers the Spanish flu. And the Spanish and flu was bad too, Joe. I know. Well, he survived the You survived col- both. And the smallpox blankets. He and when the dinosaurs too. died, that was terrible. <laughs> he survived the meteor. <laughs> which which brings, brings me up to a the question. Top hits. <laughs> the top hits. You guys want to talk about the dinosaurs. We call, we, we, we call, it, we call this uh, stuff that we pump out of the ground fossil fuel, right? Well, we've been pumping billions and billions and billions and trillions of gallons of fossil fuel out of the out of the earth for decades terry's former pits so where do where do, where did all this fossil fuel come from fossils fossils no. yes no it didn't. Right. i'll take fossils no. for a hundred it didn't 
There weren't that many animals on the planet. When you think of how long we've been pumping oil out of the ground. So what's the theory? I don't know. I don't have an answer for it, but I don't believe it's animals. Earth diarrhea. No, it's the Earth was created in a certain way. Maybe we get X amount of longevity out of it before it finally leaves the planet. I don't know, but I don't believe it's fossils. I, I We've pumped way too much of that crap out of the ground um for the listeners who can't see obviously what's going on joe has gone up and gone to the toilet again again yeah he's dropping joe, a burrito is, <laughs> joe my poor bathroom i have a kid that uses that the, good, thing. the good thing is is we're close to the ocean <laughs> the, oh, yeah. yeah right it's got less distance to travel free willy three is about to be filmed as i'm worried about stepping out <laughs> now because i know what kind of shit talking goes on no no one's saying anything <laughs> no you guys have never say anything about me while i'm gone <laughs> So I put this catheter in. Mm-hmm. So what about you from, uh, seeing as we're talking about wellness at the moment, from a back injury point of view, having had surgery, you know, overcome an initial one, and, you know, something I talk about a lot in the fire services, that this job with, you know, the way we work, the lack of rest and recovery in Anaheim is 56, no Kelly. Let's be, you know, let's highlight that. What was uh, what was your journey from surgery and then back to injury yet again? Um, I had a back injury. I had a 15 millimeter herniated disc at L5S1 in 2013, and wound up having a micro disectomy and laminectomy. Um, it took about from the day of injury to I went back on the floor. Was about eight months of my life. Um, that I think I was unarmed with what I needed to know about back injuries and the depression that would follow, um, and everything really, the recovery. And I learned well, I think my wife Melissa learned too that I don't recover from injuries, we recover <laughs> together. Um, it's hard. I, it's no secret that I'm a bit of a sissy when it comes to everything, <clears throat> needles and surgeries and injuries. So it was hard on me, but I think if anything, it was hard on my son and my wife. So to have this happen seven years later, um, yeah, it was it was rough. But at least going into this now, I was on a fire in August three months ago and on about it was a wildland fire on day three I was pretty stiff and sore after we were doing a lot of hiking and steep terrain and laying hose and cutting line um I was just stiff and sore and I thought like hey you know what I got to get on top of this I should do some stretching so I did a whole bunch of stretching and twisting and thought I was doing what I was supposed to do, I woke up in the morning and my leg was numb again. Um, I spent the next couple of days, I was doing 24-hour operational periods, and I thought, well, you know, I could be miserable and sore over here, or I could be miserable and sore at home, but if I'm over here, I'll be getting paid. So I decided I would stick it out. Um, it was tough, but I decided if I was going to be a liability to the crew, then I would ask to be relieved. Um, but we got released after, I believe it was 10 days. I went home and went to the doctor, and he then sent me to the hospital 
to have x-rays and an MRI taken. Um, I was having a lot of pain and my leg was numb and I couldn't really feel my foot that well. Um, and a couple of months later, I've had an epidural um, that didn't work. So I'm having another one scheduled soon. Well, that was long-winded. Um, but I guess the bottom line is, yeah, I'm injured again. And again, you know, you don't, you don't think it's going to happen. Um, but it has happened and now you have to deal with it. And I think the important thing now is knowing what to expect going into it. So yeah, I've been seeing a therapist and I'm just trying to get ahead of, of, I guess all the details that happen afterwards, but no one tells you in the beginning when you get injured that, yeah, you become trapped in your house and it becomes a prison and you isolated and you're away from your tribe. Um, and then people call you and they want to know what's going on because they're your, you know, they're your brothers and they care. But at the same time, it's like every time you have to talk about it, you have to relive it. And then you just get in this cycle of, and I guess the same with you, Joe, like, hey, why aren't you better yet? Or what's going on? It's like, because the reality is the doctors don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And, Very you true. know, you have to deal with workman's comp the whole way through and with different doctors and our healthcare system and at the end of the day it's really it's money that talks about what treatment gets cleared or okayed and what treatment doesn't um so it it can be frustrating at times but at the end of the day is i'm now on another journey and i am not the driver i'm a passenger so i just have to sit and go where it takes me and do the best i can with what i have which if you're a guy like, I guess, any firefighter or police or military, you're uh, a certain type of personality where you take charge of things and you make things happen yourself and you don't wait for other people to do it. But now I'm really at the mercy of pencil pushes and it gets frustrating because at the end of the day, I'm the one sitting here in pain and I'm the one that can't go running or play with my kid or go do the things I used to. Um, and it's not the person behind the desk who takes a week off of work and doesn't file the right paperwork and I have to wait. So that's frustrating, but, um, I guess we just get to do the dance all over again. Now, what about, I think this is an important thing to say, the, the procedure that was done for the first surgery that probably seemed like the magic solution then how has that factored into your back pain this this time around um i had the surgery in 2013 and i got most of the sensation of feeling back in my leg um and things have been i mean the pain never really went away the best i ever got was like a two or three out of a ten and then anytime i'd wear the scba or do any heavy lifting um it would get to like a anywhere around about a six out of 10. So it was tolerable, but uncomfortable and difficulty sleeping. It would take a day or two to kind of get lower again. So now I guess the pain is, it's way worse, but it's been so long now. I don't know if I'm just learning to deal with the pain a whole lot better or just gotten so used to it. 
But what was your the, question again? Well, because some of the stuff that they took out the first time is oh, now yeah. what's rubbing and, you know, yeah, the so bone they on bone did the before. Disectomy where they cut the disc, the bulge off of it, and, uh, um, <laughs> there you go. Come on, you got it. Same <laughs> difference. Mine looks like um, Joe was trying to open a beer with a bottle opener, which <sighs> was very challenging for yeah. him. Like a monkey. Um, <sighs> what are you asking again? I'm sorry. It's okay. I was in thrall with Joe opening the bottle too. Mm-hmm. Um, about the 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 basically the damage from the first surgery oh, yeah, contributing yeah. So to the pretty second much injury. The disc has degenerated over the last seven years from wear and tear and I guess overuse to the point where it's just about disappeared. So, but they cut some of it out too. Yeah, yeah, they cut some of it off. Um, the bones are scraping on one another at L five and s1 and then there's a herniation above that and then on top of that the vertebrae have slid forward seven millimeters i don't know what that is in americanese it doesn't matter it's millimeters we're amongst friends i don't know (laughs) anyhow so it made the hole that the spinal cord uh travels up and down that's even smaller um yeah so it's there's all kinds of other complications that come along with it but it's one of those you just take it day by day and it's hard to stay positive when it takes long but you know i have a good support system and just realize that there's better men that have had worse happen and have had less help so i think that best thing to do is trade comparison for compassion and just understand that eventually this is that will end this is just a season it's not forever hopefully and We'll get on with it, but I think my main priority right now is just being healthy again. And what I'm not unhealthy is, is I would like to be pain free and able to move around. Well, I think that's just an an important thing for people to think about when they're offered a surgery. It's going to be like, hey, this is the fix all. It's like it it might be for now, but what we're going to do to your spine might actually accelerate problems you know five ten years down the road yeah and that's the thing like the talk now with a surgeon um is if their second epidural doesn't work they want to do a fusion at three levels which for me i've just turned 40 it seems awfully young to me to be doing something like this that's going to limit movement my body the rest of my life and for a person like me that's physical and active and outdoorsy it almost seems like a death sentence. So I guess I got to wrap my head around that the most right now. But then, you know, we do this and I'm sitting on a ticking time bomb. It's going to happen again eventually. So I guess there's no one thing that helps any of it. Even before I re-injured myself, there wasn't one thing like, it wasn't like, oh, stretching or, oh, some anti-pain cream or a pill or acupuncture or yoga or Pilates or CrossFit or whatever it is. It was a combination of things and each one maybe got like between two and 5% relief. And I mean, you could easily spend the whole day doing everything I could possible to prevent the pain and to stay loose and flexible. And then, yeah, probably it would help, but it's, there's no one thing cures everything unfortunately it's a combination of things well terry i mean you're older than us considerably 
<laughs> how have what? you what? what was that? <laughs> what, what? How, how have you? What's been your philosophy to stay, you know, generally injury free through a full thirty plus career? Uh, I didn't. I had three hernia surgeries, and then knee surgeries, and I went through a back issue. Um, my, the advice I would always offer somebody is uh, avoid the surgery as long as you can. You know, you're never the same once they start playing with you. You were created a certain way, as perfect as you could possibly be at that time. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of guys that are like getting shoulder tune-ups and they're, you know, either retired or getting ready to retire and they start getting all these parts fixed up. I really question that. I think, you know, it's great to have a plan, but... I'm not sure having them tear apart your shoulders um, and then, you know, come back and tear apart the other shoulder. And then you go through all that recovery and physical therapy. And then, then they have to fix that shoulder again because there's so much scar tissue inside of it. Uh, I think you're better off just trying to keep yourself in the best shape you can and, and wait as long as you can for, like right now, I mean, I'm, my knees are probably bothering me more than anything right now and uh and as long as i can keep that pain to a minimum i'm not getting anything done to them you know i'm just going to keep on you know it gets harder and harder every day i wouldn't i mean i'm you know i'm not going to lie to you about that but you know i sit in a car for a certain period of time now and it's like getting out of it's (laughs) you know takes about 10 minutes to get everything moving again but uh how's it feel waking up in the morning yeah it's just you know it's just part of life you know and you know my my family notices it you know a little bit more than i could keep it you know hidden for now for for a long time but now it's getting to the point where it's getting more more obvious you know and at some point i'll probably get a knee replaced you know but i'll wait as long as i possibly can for that you know but I'm going to say this about you, Terry. You're not only one of the guys that I learned the most from in the department, but one of the guys I looked up to just based on, you know, doing 30 years and finishing your career on one of the busiest truck companies around. And, you know, never saw you injured. At least I didn't the time, you know, the whole time I worked with you. And to finish your career on that rig. And I'm working there now, and it's not easy. It's brutal. It's brutal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my doctor recommends I get a hip replacement surgery, and I've been avoiding it myself. Yep. It's the last thing I want to do. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's definitely definitely beats us up. Really, it, but. Yeah. I mean, it, it uh, no, there's no doubt about it. And that's, I think that's where, you know, had James been like 10 years older than me, he probably would have got me in better shape. I'd be too busy peeing my pants, but talking you, to myself. But you were, you were, you were still in the diaper at that point in time. I was. Still, so I was know, at the beginning you know, of this I, crazy in, journey. In, 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 I think it was like chapter five. <clears throat> talk about people what, ask me, but I have no idea what chapter numbers that, my book is. <laughs> well, it's 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 uh, when you talk about uh, doing the workout with. Uh, oh, the the deadlifts after the back injury. No, no, no. It was when you were working with, uh, um, doing the doing the bells, the kettles. 
with uh, what's his name over at Station Two. Neo, oh yeah, Neil Powers. Neil Powers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the first ever CrossFit workout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the CrossFit thing. You know that uh, when I read that chapter, I was like, I wonder, maybe I should give Neil a call. You know, maybe I could go over and start training with him. But oh, I, I thought about it, but and I thought, you think you're sore now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can tell you now. Don't train with Neil. He has. It's very deceiving. He has strength, and he is so much better conditioned than he looks. Right. He will break you off. That's. Oh no, no. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't go that far. But I mean, the the the, the CrossFit the, philosophy is great. The you just idea, gotta understand scaling. Yeah, the idea is awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, the yeah. idea is a great idea. I just don't think. You know, not sure right now. Yeah, that's a good thing for me. Why? Well, because because it's just like the little things that you do. You know, I'll I'll do something to to my knee, and it's like now you got to wait another two weeks for the inflammation to go down. Yeah. So you can kind of get back to normal again. And what you did to, to set it off was almost nothing. Yeah. So it's like, do you really want to, I mean, I would love to do it because I'd love to get myself in a little better shape, but it, I'm not sure I can afford to pay the cost. Well, I'm, I'm convinced that knees are a lot to do with what they call the posterior chains, so your hamstrings and glutes and everything. Because I, um, my knees were finally good. I had my other meniscus done and it was all healed up. And I did the stunt audition for the stunt role. And uh, long story short, I was kicking where 20-year-old James could kick in the air, which is a lot higher than where 46-year-old James can kick. And tore a hamstring in the middle of the audition. <laughs> I got a good poker face, so yeah. no one knew. <laughs> That's a telltale sign of age, huh? <laughs> Still managed to get the job, but was in pain for a long time. But then we did like, you know, the breakfalls of the rolls and stuff, and, and it kind of locked up my knees. And it, it was, yeah, it was the same thing. It was rough. But what I found was deadlifts, kettlebell swings, those things when I was working on lengthening my you know those muscles in the back and strengthening them it took the pressure off my knees the knees rehabbed a lot better but when that got all tight from sitting like when i wrote the book on a freaking wooden chair for five months that was what made it worse so there's you can do gentle exercise i think that would help help yeah. the knees i'm but. not sure I'm, i mean it's like uh i just don't know you can say it dickie <laughs> you say james you've come so far with your podcast you used to have to sit in a wooden chair all by yourself <laughs> with a typewriter and now here you are with four microphones and a thought, dj sound mixing i, I thought he was changing his voice so he could sound like a guest oh that's what <laughs> i was <laughs> hello hello i'm james tell me how james's guest i am a french <laughs> five five down <laughs> but i will say that uh i'm I, you know, I retired out with a regular retirement, just a generic one. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, that was always my goal. Yeah, to not medically to, retire out. To not out. medically retire out. Mm-hmm. And I worked with a lot of people that their goal was the opposite. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you take what comes your way and and whatever it is, that's what you deal with. But no, I'm living the dream. Mm-hmm. Well, I still my- got to make all my own choices. I don't have a pa- no, nobody has a durable power turning over over me yet. Yes. <laughs> Are you sure about that? <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> that, that you can remember. Yeah. No. Um, I, I, that's I, the thing. Like, I, I, there's not a whole lot of people that make it through this 
career in the fire service unscathed? I don't think there's anyone. Like the ones we think well, are unscathed aren't unscathed. probably. There's nobody that makes it unscathed. Maybe the scars aren't on the outside, but yeah. they are on there's, the inside. There, there's there's, some, there's tissue there. Did you see how I did that? I did that. Wow. Your body is a wonderland. Uh-huh. No, I did not say that. You said that. You said their lips are good. But yeah, it's hard to have a full career, even in a slower firehouse. It's the waking up at night and bending over, putting a gear on and lifting yeah. up people upstairs in the back bedroom. But I, th- I, think there, I think there's a group of people out there. There's a yeah, small group. That that's their goal throughout their their entire career is to do as little as possible, and I think they kind of slide by. Yeah, but James has moved on, so right. <laughs> See how I did that? Yes, that'll get edited out. But you know, just like just like when I was a young fireman, we had this 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 cop <laughs> Stupid James. hiding from the tyran- <laughs> hiding from the T Rexes. <laughs> We had, we had this. <laughs> that volcano's on fire. <laughs> had this cop that his whole goal his entire career was to never have to pull his gun. So he bid the slowest possible area in Anaheim Hills. He never promoted, never did anything. He just hid out his entire career. Never once did he ever have to pull his weapon. He would always show up last to the events. And, um, uh, he retired out the same way everybody else did. Mm-hmm. It's like those firefighters you hear. And I've heard stories in almost every department that, you know, there's a structure fire and they get off the rig and they just disappear. Or well, they and forget like, to go on scene. Mm-hmm. Like, where the hell did so-and-so go? Well, you know, those that never do, never want to do. Yeah. So they should never be there in the no first place. There's no confidence to do. They that have was, nothing to base their That was never on. this truck. Mm-hmm. Oh, hell no. 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 no you always... There's a plenty of work to do. We showed up. Mm-hmm. That was the best, one of the best times I ever had in my career, working with this crew. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's yeah. what gave me abs, laughing so fucking hard for three and a half years. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, boys. All right, well, let's transition to some more stories. I don't know what we told last time, but after the, the session we had last night. Oh, I, re- I have something. I... It's in my locker at work, and it's been a while since I've been there, but this must have been about 2007 or so, 2008. We uh, went on a call, and it was at a bus stop, and there was a attractive woman that was there in a black dress. Oh, look, he's already putting his head down because he knows. <laughs> um, uh, Patty listens to this too, by the way. So She knows about her. She read the letter. <laughs> yes. Um, I took it home and showed her. This woman was part of the call somehow. It was at a bus stop. She was very out of place in the part of the city that we worked in. Um, But somehow after the call, Terry was chatting with her, making sure she was okay. And um, she wound up, was it sending a letter or an email to... That was was one of those uh, Orange County Transit bus accidents where it bumps a car. And everybody on the bus is now a victim. Oh, she, yeah. was a, oh. she was in the car, though, right? Think, no, she was in the bus. In no, the bus. there was no way that this woman would have been on the bus. Yeah, she was on the bus. <clears throat> Remember, they had a two-people-in-the-room moment. Dickie. Yes, so in the letter Terry that she writes, clearly. she describes Terry as an older gentleman. And the crew, <laughs> like, 
Nick Scott and myself were all under 30 at the time, I think. So Scott Mattis? Mm-hmm. Well, he looks Even like though he looks 50. like, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Scotty. Um, but she was very clear in the letter there was an older gentleman with the silver fox look about him. Um, silver fox. Yes, yeah, silver fox. <laughs> Um, and it felt like they were the only two pe- people in the room when Terry was talking to her. And of course, this woman who I'm sure is a very nice lady, but the sweetheart sends this letter to fire admin, which then gets kicked to the station, <laughs> which then got intercepted. Um, and we printed out this roster for that day. And wouldn't you know, the silver fox she was referring to was Terry. Um, and I still have that letter somewhere, but if you have it, Terry, then it... Oh, the, that, same effect, the wife has a letter now. I don't know what she happened. Has it. Well, know. you got to keep her. You got to keep keep her on her toes, Terry. I, I don't know whatever happened to it. She's got to know that woman at the bus station. <clears throat> they like you. Was that better than the letter I got from the correction facility? <laughs> <laughs> that letter you was from a You got a couple a letters from there. Yeah, Let's from talk about that, Joe. I don't remember anything that happened. Well, shit, you done. <laughs> I don't know. Let's talk to the one who actually was the I don't mastermind. Know what are you talking about? <laughs> Somebody so, must have um, put Joe's name in the hat for to have a prison pen, pen pal. pal. Yeah. yeah, from prison. Yeah, that was the prison pen pal. And then there were a couple of those letters that showed up at the station. <laughs> what was the guy's? What was the guy's name that wrote the letter to Joe? Mm, I don't know. Joe probably still has the letters. He saved them. His fan mail. Um, I don't was recall it, was the it, name. It was a guy, wasn't it? I got COVID. Fo- I got COVID fog. <laughs> yeah. No, conveniently, you don't remember. <laughs> and then there was some. It's a catch-all right there. I can use it. Yeah, I like that. I'll try that with Becky when I go home. COVID fog. <laughs> but you never had it, James. But I was around somewhere. I, I, I had it in California, but I'm good now. But I've got COVID fog. But yeah, we. Joe was subscribed to a prison pen pal system where he used to get letters from inmates how did he get subscribed to that i don't know um (laughs) i don't know and then there was i don't i don't know about this one but that letter and the picture that came from some woman who was definitely not the person writing the letter wanting money so she could come and meet you and fly to you was it what was the thing that you you called me one day and you were convinced that i was behind it was it that one yeah, well, I thought it was you. Yeah, I'm like, uh, how could you? I think forgot it was the name. Me? It was Joe something. They had, they had the name. Oh, it was I E Joe. Or something yeah, like something like oh, that. I don't know. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Busted. The defense rests, Your Honor. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, I E Joe. Uh huh. Didn't you sign me up for Young and Mother magazine too? I started getting subscriptions to that at the station. I signed a lot of people up for a lot of <laughs> magazines. It was me trying to educate people. And help them read more and sell off the adult websites that you spend most of your days on. Um, so continue telling me about IE Joe. Yeah, where did it go? I don't know. You're the ones that saved all the letters. No, I, I didn't. Um, but anyhow, these letters would come to the station and then they'd get put up on the, on the board. We had like a notice board or a cork board in the kitchen. The board of shame. Yeah. Well, the usually board the shame, board of yeah. shame, uh, you would put it up as we were going off shift so that the next shift can be fur- <laughs> totally prepared for when we come back the next day. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's not right. No. 
I don't believe in that. I thought you were going to wait outside the prison with a bunch yeah. of flowers and a imagine ring. He's what giving false hopes to the reform. Imagine what your profile looks like, Joe, that they were reading when they decided they'd want to write to you. <laughs> you know, they can go both ways. As a matter of fact. <laughs> I, think you had, I think you had sent them pictures of Joe working out in the gym, hadn't you? No, I just prison workouts. Him all sweaty? No, I have full of vinegar. Too many scary thoughts of Joe being all sweaty working out. <laughs> I saw his back went out. Yeah. <laughs> he was trying to get away. Running from you. <laughs> oh, is the mic not close enough? No, can no, you opener. pass me the bottle opener? Oh, please? bottle opener? Like bottle shank. opener? Over there. Hello, Gav. Come on, Shanking Gav. your wiener over there. See, he won't use his teeth anymore since <laughs> they're nice and mean now. Well, this is the best his teeth have ever been. So. Yeah. I will not use them, even though they're porcelain. <laughs> Oh my goodness! I think it was it wasn't Anaheim. It was the next department, uh, Orange County. They set up an entire grinder account for one of the firefighters. That's exactly what I was thinking for. Yeah. <laughs> it would be very believable. Mm-hmm. I remember they started getting phone calls immediately. It was and hilarious. Lots of hits. You Hello? did that at your bachelor party <laughs> when we went to see you for your wedding. Someone wrote my phone number on, on the, the toilet. Yes, was that you, asshole? <laughs> no. I think, I think I, it was your sister. I think to it was Krista. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. James's sister, sweetheart, the first time we meet her, decides she's going to get on all this fun, writes my phone number on the bathroom wall, and <laughs> I got calls for the rest of the night. I don't know what... This is the men's bathroom, and men are calling me. Well, uh, because you're a good-looking man. But we were in Florida, so... With a bad back. It's hard to fight back. Uh-huh. Anyhow, yeah, I spent the rest of the weekend fielding phone calls from desperate men. Thanks, Krista. Krista. Chris, uh, yes, I, uh, I think I'll have to get her back eventually. <laughs> How's your sister doing? She's mean. She's great. She's in London. That's in England. Um, you been there? Jo- James has no, been. I there. tried to. They won't let me go in at the moment. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't they got rid of you. They don't oh, want you back. God, it's a nightmare trying to go home. That's. Uh, I still remember when she came to the station. Put me in my place. Dickie's sister. So, yeah. You may have gathered Joe's a smart ass. I have a sister that my brother and I were pretty hard on. And hard on or afraid of? Yes. And I think we ruined her. But she doesn't take any crap. And she came to the station and Joe thought he'd be a smart ass. And she didn't take that. So <laughs> she put Joe in his place real quick. She wasn't, she wasn't, I think it's something about Joe because I've seen other women do that too. This is my 120 pound, Remember five the, foot four sister. There was a gal a over on, on uh, one 280 pound man in his place real quick. Do you remember the gal over on uh, the city promenade? Over there when the we ice talked rink? about last night. Oh, the ice rink. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I Told was, you to go on a diet? Yeah. She wasn't very nice either. She was why. smart, though. She was intelligent. <laughs> that mic's not going to work if you put it by your ear. That was a good that one. That was over though. there by the bank, man. She cut you high, wide, and deep. Yeah. It was like she got me like a tuna. <laughs> it was like she opened up. A, she had a big old yep. clip on that. She had a big old banana clip on that 45, man. She shot all kinds of holes. Oh, so you yeah. guys, you got to tell Joe a story looked, now. Joe turned and looked at us and goes like, I got nothing. 
<laughs> so, so you got to tell the story because people listening don't know what we're talking about. I was, uh, I was rude to her. So she wasn't being very nice to begin with. There was a... I guess... You're off to poop again? In the... Yeah, yeah for the record, Joe's <laughs> going to the bathroom again. Um, I'm going to lift the seat this time. That's fine. See, the this seat's time. already up. You're okay. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't lift the seat. sit down anyway. when you pee anyway. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, there was a report of someone having psych problems uh, outside of one of the stores in the downtown area and we show up there and this woman took one look at joe and decided she was gonna mess with him and he was in the crosshairs from the get-go and everything she just she let him up from the get-go he's wearing his turn his bunker pants and a brush coat and she told him he looked like a school bus because <laughs> that was a lot of yellow and then it just went downhill from there and of course well the mistake joe made was trying to retaliate he did and that was and that's the thing like there's a line that as like civil servants you just can't cross and <clears throat> she didn't have to stay on the other side of that line so she went for it and it was just amazing it was she was beautiful in her insults towards joe <laughs> and watching joe just sit there with that look on his face not being able to say anything was very satisfying for me you know what that moment needed it needed little a camera little tens we could all hold yes. up. Yes. <laughs> if you had some paper plates, we could write numbers on it. Yeah. Do I need to get a toilet plunger, Joe? He wasn't there long Not enough. Not yet, yeah. If I was in there for more than half hour, then you might. If you put your phone in there, you know you're <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Pooping again, LOL, smiley face. Oh, LOL. <laughs> did you finish your story, Richard? I did. Yeah. Next question. Um, so transitioning because we're obviously kind of thank you. I think we told every war story in the last one, it was like four and a half hours long. I have no idea, I didn't listen to the last one again because I haven't got four and a half hours of my life to waste listening to us yabbering. You don't have a job, James, you have plenty of time. So, um, but no, my, my next thing is observations in kind of what we touched on, you know, with some of the things we've seen at the moment, some of the good decisions with overall health, some of the the elements that are contributing to everyone at this table being injured at a young age, being, you know, athletes when we stepped on the diamond, as I talk about. I'm curious as to if you were king for a day, what would you do to put the fire service back to a place where it hired the best and it created longevity for them to see out their entire career without being broken? So a big question, but... Oh, can I go first? Yeah. Uh, veterans credit if we hired guys who were fresh out of the military one I think that would be an amazing thing to, to give back that. they used to it would be an amazing thing to give back to yeah you always had veterans the men and women veterans points on your uh, on your test that helped out um, and you take a person that can follow orders and is already well conditioned and physically fit and already has that mindset of brotherhood or sisterhood or team and put in others before yourself. Um, I think that's where in the past we have maybe lost the plot in our hiring practices, but getting a, a team spirit, I guess, and the brotherhood back would be the first thing. If there's one thing that the fire service has done wrong, it's, it's hard, Dickie. It's, well, 
foreigners <laughs> hiring British people. It be actually, preference and foreigners unpreference. <laughs> actually, it's uh, lowering the lowering the hiring standards <clears throat> and the physical fitness standards. Any of the standards that they've that they've had for decades that they've had to lower to become more acceptable to society. Um, I think that's a huge mistake. What's the facade too? Because have you seen the female athletes in the world? If we're talking, let's just talk, pick on you know, put, pull it out of the shadows. Obviously, the women is one side. They don't need the bar lowered for himself, and that's what's so stupid. The the women that are perfectly yeah. capable of doing this job don't need a lower standard. They don't, but um, you know, it's just. Uh, I I think that that by doing that you're kind of you're kind of uh, reducing the expectation of what people envision the fire service to be oh absolutely you're, you're just saying you know for years it was a one man 24 mm -hmm. not anymore do you remember the time we tried to do the one man 35 well yeah he can do it yeah I saw someone talking about it the other day on a, on a. It was a good Facebook, you know, discussion. Yeah, I mean, but, it, but and and that's no, that is absolutely no. I don't mean any negative towards anybody that's there now. That's that that got there, mm -hmm. but I think that standards are standards, and you just live with the standards. If people want to work hard enough to make that standard, mm -hmm. they will. Well, here's the thing. I'll tell you who did me. So when I first came to Anaheim, I've been trained in. Oh, I was though. I'd been trained in Florida, and we did the, the the throw where it was a you know low shoulder to the wall, lay it down, butt against the wall, go back, walk up the rungs, do it, you know, then then raise it. Then you had to do the stupid little rotate. Oh God, the flies have to be on the out, you know, fly on the outside and all that bullshit. Um, and I came here, and you guys were picking it up and throwing it on your shoulder and sticking it. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? And, you know, my job was actually on the line for the first few weeks. So I had to do exactly that. I had to take what I had, and I'm not a big boy, and figure it out really, really fast. Otherwise, I would have been cut. So I can completely understand what you're talking about. But it, it was but a it, miracle. But, it, <laughs> but it's still not just being big and strong. Lost a lot you, of money on that You still have bit. to have the coordination and then all, you know. That's technique as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Technique, all of it. technique is the huge equalizer. And... Um, you know, for the guys that grew up in fire service families, they were probably had a bit of an advantage because, you know, they were around it all the time. I didn't grow up that way. Nobody in this room probably grew up that way. So it's like, uh, you know, you get in the academy and you either, you know, when I went through, you either picked it up pretty quick or they let you go. Yeah. They weren't looking to stick, you know, to keep people in the academy. I mean, they loved to wash people out because got the attention of everybody else left in the in the group so mm -hmm. uh, that's why I, th I really believe that you know if there was one area that that i say anaheim screwed up on it was it was the do-overs that they got themselves kind of caught in it's like somebody didn't pass you gave them a do-over that means you got to give everybody a do-over and if you didn't give somebody a do-over they probably had some legal action against you for not allowing them to have a do-over mm. you know because now you're not treating everybody the same so you treat everybody the same by holding the standard to where it standard should be irregardless whether 
-hmm. Enough females can pass the process or not. There will be ones that will be able to pass it. Yeah, and there'll be a lot of men that will wash out because it's not and just the woman. There'll thing. be guys that can't pass it that, mm-hmm. that shouldn't be there. <clears throat> exactly. So it's either you can or you can't. It's the only prejudice yeah. in the fire department. And I talk Jen, about this all the time. We've had this discussion before. If we're in a situation and like any fireman who tells you he's never scared is a liar. That's the bottom line. We go into situations that humans should, should not be in, and when we're in these situations and it's blacked out smoke to the ground and it is hot as hell um yeah i'm afraid for my life and i'm afraid am i going to go home tomorrow and am i going to get burned or am i not going to find my way out and i can't see the person next to me i can't i can't see their name i can't tell if it's a male or a female a black guy a white guy an asian guy even a british guy um (laughs) I don't care either. All I care about is can that person take care of me if things go south on us? That is it. And if the answer is yes, then I feel just a little bit better and I feel a little bit better pushing a little deeper and going a little harder knowing that someone's got my back. And it doesn't matter the gender or the sexual orientation or the color of that person. It matters, is that person all in or not? And did they train? And can they do the job? That's all I care about. I can tell you this, James. I got hired in 2001. My academy, granted, we had to have a basic fire academy in order to get employed. Uh, But it was four weeks more of an orientation where you just kind of learned the basics on the way Anaheim does things. Um, Fast forward till now, you know, up until couple of years ago I was a training captain and the standards that we put forth the the academy the training everything that we put forth to our new recruits was 180 from what we went through when I got hired um, we did a lot more with them a lot more uh, training we even emphasized physical fitness that was part of the uh of the academy was physical fitness, which it wasn't before when we got hired. So we put forth physical fitness and we made that an importance with the thought of starting to, you know, put these, put thoughts in this guy's head that this is part of our culture, physical fitness. Every station now has uh, pretty much a whole CrossFit gym at each station. We got a $150,000 grant to get equipment at each station. The training that we have is well above and beyond anything that we ever got when I got hired. I mean, when I got hired, granted it was a, a tactic that worked, but kicking in the door. You know, no one knew, the Halligan was a tool that was just there for decoration pretty much. You no lean one, on it while you kick the door. No one knew how to use it. <laughs> Everyone now that's hired is well-versed on how to use a Halligan, uh, how to go through a lock. Um, so the standards have really improved dramatically uh or to say the the training standards and but the standard we have for each individual hasn't changed you know we still hold each individual accountable for um what the what they have to know and how they perform uh granted there has been individuals that have gotten a second chance even way back you know not too long after i got hired those individuals are now company officers and well-respected company officers. So yeah, maybe sometimes it's 
you know, somebody has a bad day, but like individuals that are two individuals in a hazmat or hazmat captains, well-respected individuals that are now company officers um, that struggled during probation for whatever reason or during a test because they had a bad day. You know, everybody's not perfect. You know, you're going to have guys, uh, for me, like a test day, I took the last BC test. I, I fumbled, you know, not the greatest test taker. But you put me in a real, on an incident, it's night and day. I, I, I get a little scattered brain more on a test, but you put me in a real incident, I don't have any problems at all. Yeah. So I think, speaking just from my experience now, for the last almost 20 years, we have improved quite a bit. Where we could improve on leaving more is team building, like we had here. We had pretty good team building within our within this crew. Mm-hmm. Each Absolutely. crew needs to develop their own team building in order to know the capabilities and you know what is and the limitations of each individual in our crew, what their strengths and weaknesses are. I think that's one of the things that we could do better on is developing that that team building. It is difficult for a department, which it shouldn't be for our size in Anaheim, but some larger departments where you can get an individual working overtime. You don't know who their capa- what their capabilities are, what their limitations are. But when you have a pretty cohesive crew like we had here, I, I felt comfortable you know, doing anything. I had all the confidence in the world with Terry getting us in a spot where we were going to do things safe and he was going to get us home safe. And I, you know, confidence in you guys doing your job correctly. I had confidence in myself and that's what, that's what it takes. But as far as what the standards are and what we're doing now, at least I'm speaking just from Anaheim perspective. I mean, we've really have gone leaps and bounds, you know, as far as training education and making sure that everybody uh, has progressed to where, you know, meeting standards that are, you know, put out today. Yeah. No, and I agree hundred percent. The one, the ones that I've seen that, truly have lowered the the bar or it was never there in the first place you know i see that knock on i talk about anaheim as the kind of gold standard on the other side um but the ones that are bringing the bar down and this happens in police and in military in a lot of areas um there's a there's in my opinion a misunderstanding that's going to increase hiring it's going to get more bums on seats but i disagree completely i've had a lot of people from different fields you know agree with this it's like when you keep that bar high, it's revered. Mm-hmm. So you attract the most alpha male and females who prepare, who understand. Like when we, when all of us, when we got through that probation that first year, A, there was understanding that we just, you know, we we're new guys, they say in the SEALs or that kind of thing. Like we just made it through that crucible and now our career starts and the training starts. But there was a an appreciation of your job because you truly thought you were going to get fired any day and you know correct me if i'm wrong but i think from the other side of it if we made it through an anaheim probation then you knew we were worth a shit because Mm -hmm. you would cut 25 percent of our class every Mm -hmm. single class so if you made it through obviously you had what it took to then you know prove yourself through your career but you definitely had had passed that so if you remove those people that would turn an application for 10 jobs right but it 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 gave you a chance to go through a one-year probation to actually prove yourself yeah it got you through the door Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but but you weren't afraid to let us no no i'm just saying you you took a test Mm -hmm. that thinned out the herd to a, a small number and then you went into the academy with a small number and then you came out of the academy with a smaller number, mm-hmm. 
And then you all entered into a 12-month period where very likely at the end of that, there was going to be one or two less people. Yeah, and you weren't afraid to fire us on day 364. No, but I mean, if you made it through, you felt like you earned something. Yeah, there's something to be proud of. And I always like to think that Anaheim wasn't a stepping stone for anyone. It was a destination. I'll tell you a story just quickly. When I took the CPAT to test out to go back east again, because I moved my family back. Yeah, James was the only person to ever leave. Yeah, literally. When I did the CPAT guy, I was like, you're the only person I've ever met that's left Anaheim. And I was geography and the fact that I had a child and his mother wanted to go back to her family. So there was a, you know, the only thing yeah, that comes before the job is family. Not many other options for you. No, but yeah, the guy was shocked. And that, that, what does that say about Anaheim Fire? And that speaks volumes. No, we, you know, throughout my career, there was a handful. I mean, literally a handful of people. I couldn't, I mean, maybe five people left us to go to either Montclair or LA County or Long Beach or most of them came back and I mean maybe four or five people mm-hmm. at yeah. the most Paul came back um, Butler came back mm-hmm. Mark John came back Mark John yeah. and then some stayed you know a handful of guys um, there was a battalion chief in uh, Montclair he was the guy that was working with Jerry Austin at the college. Mm-hmm. He's a San Diego guy, wasn't there, that came for a bit and then went back to San Diego like after we got hired, I want to say. But, I mean, during my time, my ter- period of time, almost nobody ever left. Still doesn't happen now. Well, because when you leave, you spend one-third of your life with the men and women that you work with. So you're essentially leaving your family to go somewhere else. Yeah, and James. That's it, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Fuck you. See, I can say that. You're so mean. <clears throat> that's going to get edited out. Um, yeah, it's, I can't imagine it, but leaving would be a hard thing to do and to sit there and plot or plan to go somewhere else. That has to be a hard thing and then actually doing it. And James, you did that. It... It had to be hard because oh, I, we I, had such a good thing going. And I know it wasn't your choice to leave, but you were being a good father and you have been a good husband, which at the end of the day, that's what you have to do. But I can't imagine having to make that decision. That would that'd be hard. I'd question a lot of things. When we all met my last night out on the east side, I went to my car after I walked away from you know the, the celebration and I just cried for like probably five minutes straight it broke my heart even it really did but like you said that was what a pussy that was the one <laughs> that was the one thing that was you know I was gonna put first now obviously I didn't realize that a couple of years later that <laughs> my marriage would fall apart anyway so I should have just fucking stayed but um no obviously that was you know that was meant to happen and I had a beautiful baby boy out of it but yeah i mean it was it was hard and then to go to two departments one that had some great great people but some really bad ones that was like oh shit and then the final one just to be like what the fuck am i doing here because my benchmark was hialeah my first one which the bar was set high as well and they were awesome just abused by their city and then us you know i went from that and just fell from grace after that and it was something I talking about mental health. That was some of my lowest years because I knew what the fire service should look like. Mm-hmm. And I never found that again. 
we have a pretty good thing going over there in Anaheim. You know, definitely a well-respected organization. You know, especially now being a, what do we call it, Cal Fire Anaheim? Mm-hmm. We have, <laughs> you know, with all the brush rigs. But on the positive end of that note, the guys that we send out, as much as they, you know, hate it, love it, or whatever, indifferent about it, um, they get rave reviews from whoever is running those uh, those fires. And it gets back to Pat Russell, and he he's quick to give kudos. So the guys, however they feel about it, are out there busting their ass, you know, and giving a good name to us. We so, are lucky enough that we do work for a, well, it's not a big department, it's just a lot small, so I'll say medium. yeah. But we are well-funded with all the uh, things that Anaheim has going for it between the baseball stadium and the convention center and the ice hockey rink and and Disney and all the hotels. Um, It's a well-funded department with a lot of equipment, and we are really, really lucky that we have that and the 4-0 staff in. Um, I think that's something that guys forget from time to time, not guys that come from other departments because they have seen what it looks like with three O staff in and half the equipment and twice the amount of calls. So I think we are very, very lucky to have that. If we could just get them to a 42 hour work week. That's what you guys should be on. One of the things that being very progressive on was taking care of our mental health Um, with the, you know, getting the uh, counseling. Who spearheaded that? Jeremy Keith. Did he? Yeah. Really? Jeremy Keith and, uh, Fat Bosley. Fat Bosley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Fat Bosley. So Those two could stunt double each other, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they look like the number 10. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy, if you're listening, I love you. But, you know, if it wasn't for Jeremy, he really did spearhead this. And it came at a time when it was uh, necessary. You know, Orange County Fire lost Eric Weave about a couple of, less than a month. Um that you know committed suicide jumping off a bridge i remember that it was awful and less than a month later that's when richard and i had that uh call with the uh the two teenage kids oh, the three fatalities yeah. of that street, that was race. The street race yeah. Yep. yeah and that that one was it affected me not knowing how much it affected rich um and when they brought in the team to you know we had a peer support um, we were able to discuss it, but you know, opening up that that help, getting that necessary, uh, um, you know, the uh, let's say therapy. That's such a weird word to say. Well, counseling, ther- counseling, mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of people that don't want to talk about anything, but they feel you know it's under the cover, un- under the radar. Um, you know, after uh, the uh, Las Vegas shooting, we had a lot of our guys that were over there, and they started up a counseling session for all those guys. It's been a great service. You know, we don't need to know who uses it. We don't need. We don't care who uses it, as long as they use it. Yeah. And it's there for them. It's there for them and their family. And uh, that, that's a great addition. That you know, it's still one of those things where it's a it's a a slippery slope. You know, someone can go out on PTSD, PTSI, and it's not going to be something that's going to be claimed by the city. You know, they can 
throw out the bullshit flag all they want. But it's getting closer and closer now. I think the governor actually, didn't he uh, send legislation that it's you know, going to be a presumptive injury? I mean, I could be wrong. PTSD. That, that, yeah, so. we had it in Florida, but it's, <clears throat> it's still riddled with red tape where you have to have had an acute event, from what I understand. So you had to have had a pulse of Vegas, um, which, you know, 96% of people on this job that, you know, have a mental health effect or injury or whatever you want to call it from what we do is, is cumulative. It's chronic. It's not acute. You know, but a lot of the, a lot of agencies just don't, they haven't really done much about it, you know, and you know, we had the peer support and we have guys that are attentive. I mean, we talk about, you know, like, like you, Terry, being attentive to it, like when they have the, the fatality with the infant and keeping these two guys away from it. You know, that says a lot about Terry as a supervisor, you know, Absolutely. thinking outside of the box, you know. And that's why I well. think I learned a lot from Terry. Just yeah, that was long before PTSD was even a thought, yeah. you know, a buzzword. It that was, was just, what, like 07, probably? I, I tell you, what was that? That was like it was before being a father I, or just being a I good person or guys. just knowing? Or Where did that come from? I guess, hang on, James, you better tell the backstory on this. You write about this in your book, but there was a horrific yeah. traffic accident that we went to. That there was it, was a, a, it was an early morning uh, incident where uh, a tweaker was fell asleep at the wheel with her boyfriend in the passenger seat, and the kids were in the back. And uh, she almost... <laughs> it's... <laughs> I talk to people all the time and I say, that's what makes it an accident. You know, it's like her. Well, hang on. Joe's in the bathroom again. <laughs> this is what, number, f- number four. <laughs> this is number four. I didn't know there was a number four. <laughs> I didn't think he ate that much pizza. <laughs> anyway, um, it's like, it's like the simplest little things in life that separate people from walking away or never having an incident. And then they, you have this horrific event and it's just, it's a fractions of seconds in time that it separate life and death. Yeah. This one, if she'd skidded just four feet to the and left this or one, right. This yeah. one, had she stayed or awake, not done meth for if, if she'd weekend. have stayed awake for one more second, she'd have been down at the stoplight and maybe nothing would have happened. Mm-hmm. Or blew through just into a bush but, or something. But it was an, you know, it was an ugly scene where she'd got sideways and, wrapped her car around this big old stinking four-foot pole. And uh, in some ways it remind not, in some ways it reminded me about my first fatality that I was on. In some ways. It wasn't quite as horrific as the one that I was on my first my first one. Mm-hmm. But it was uh, it was kind of similar. It was that mine was on the freeway. This was kind of on the off ramp, so it was had some similarities to it. But at the end of the day, it's like there's some things in life you just don't need to see. If you have the choice to not see them, there's things you shouldn't see in life because you can't unsee things. And yep. I've seen things that I can't unsee. And so that was the motivating factor. There was no reason for you guys to see it. I'd already seen it long ago. So it was like, in my mind, I was thinking, I can keep you guys virgins for a little while longer. 
And that was the thought process. Yeah. Well, that was, that was it. Terry, had someone done that for you in the past? Or? Oh, that, that, that wasn't an option because, you know, the, the, I was on, I was at Station 2 six weeks on the job and we got a call for a uh, uh, problem on the I-5, southbound I-5 right by Station 2. And uh, it was just before Euclid and uh, it was a winter morning and this gal had run out of gas along the I-5. So um, if you remember where the water tower was on the south side there, there was a um, a company that did thermostats. I think it was Robert, it was Robert Shaw um, building there. And so she called one of her buddies up over there at Robert Shaw to come pick her up off the freeway. So this guy pulls up, gets in front, parks in front of her on the side of the road, and when she pulled off the freeway, she didn't really pull all the way as far as she could to the right. She ran out of gas, and she just kind of pulled over and stopped. And um, so she's getting out of the car, out of the driver's side. And uh, as she's getting out of the car, this asphalt truck was an old Ford. Was an old Ford truck. I remember. You know, it was like a three or four ton truck. And back in that day, the steering box was, it had a, a nut on it. You can, you can pull the gears tighter together to where there was no slop in the wheel. Mm-hmm. And um, it was one of those things where it would, the truck would go a direction and you would correct it. Then it would go a direction and you would correct it. I've driven fire trucks like that before. <laughs> it, was, it was just, it had a really sloppy steering box in it. And, um, with I five has those grooves going down the road and it grabs the tires and it pulls you a certain direction. And just as she got out of her car and stood in front of the door, this truck goes off the first lane into the emergency parking area and just takes her and scrubs her between the two vehicles. So we spent the next three hours picking up pieces so, you know, that was the first fatality I'd had. You know, it's funny is that how long ago was that? Do you remember every detail? Oh, I can tell you. I can tell you what we had for lunch that day. It's probably what thirty-five, had, forty years ago now. Um, it would have been nineteen seventy, nineteen eighty-seven. So, mm-hmm. whatever that is, a long time ago. Yeah, we had grilled cheese and tomato soup for lunch that day. Choking puke. And it was, I could tell you, it was a winter day because it was overcast. Um, seared into your mind now. Oh, you never forget. Mm-mm. I can tell you almost every... But there's how many of your daughter's dance recitals or whatever. Oh, I forget. I forget all forget the child. Those? I forgot all the childbirths. I forgot all that stuff. But no. you ask me, I can, I can tell you the details of almost every significant mm-hmm. call. You ever go on? It's true, though. I, I don't know. I'm sure there's a phenomenon or a name for it, but I was involved in a motorcycle accident when I was 16. I was lucky enough to survive pretty much unscathed where I should have been seriously injured. But I remember reading this guy's bumper sticker on the back of his truck because it happened in slow motion for me. It was raining. I rode into the back of him. I came over a hill. 
and came down and traffic had come to a stop and I plowed into the back of this guy's truck. I remember reading the bumper sticker and I still remember what it said to this day. Perfectly, I remember the whole thing. What did it say? It was a radio station, Radio Grootkop, in South Africa with Afrikaans. That's why you have that tattoo on your station. forehead to this day. Yes, that's <laughs> it. But I can remember reading that because my face was about one foot from it and my head nearly hit it in that split second. But you remember all the bad things, but the good things just seem to fade away all the time. That's the funny part about the brain. The brain has a way of... Uh you can't rewrite it's it's I don't believe it's possible to rewrite the hard drive when it comes to the brain. The brain is the hard drive. It it there's certain things that that get written and then there's certain things that that um you don't hang on to. But for whatever reason um it's it's quite strange. It's a phenomenon. It's like a scar, isn't it? Yeah, it's very it. much... It burns into you. It's mm -hmm. very much... It's You know, like I say, it's a hard drive. It, it That information gets burnt in, and you carry that around with you for the duration. The happy things and the fun things, they seem to fade over time, but... Well, you... Fuck you, me, you, man. The you, bad you, shit, you, you, it hang on, you hang on to the fun things a lot. I mean, we hang on to a lot of our fun things. I mean, we can, we can talk about all the pranks and all that stuff that, that, that happens along the way, but there's other things... You know, it's one of those things that we don't, kids' birthdays. We don't commit stuff to memory. You know, it's like some like certain events you don't get committed to memory because it's become it's either it's it's a habit or it's something that we you know. Uh, you okay, Terry? Yep. All right. Hey, it's gonna take I, about one minute to sit there before a pee comes out. Huh? Probably, him and I walk the same right now. Yeah. <laughs> He's probably got to plunge it for about 12 minutes before he can even use it. There's a 20-something-year age difference, and Terry and I are walking around the same right and now. Joe. And Joe. And Joe. But I was saying, though, you've, some of the things are like habitual. You, you don't commit it to memory. You don't bother to. But something when it's something that's traumatic, something that is really fun, something that it's going to be memorable, you do commit that to memory. But that's the thing. Purposely, it's, almost. It's not a poor me either. No, like you talk to these, and it's almost like, oh, I should be able to handle that. And I remember when this happened. I mean, Terry's not sitting here right now, but when this happened, that's why I wrote about it. I was blown away at the time. I was a dad. You didn't have Reese. You're a did new you? dad. You're new dad. Brand yeah. new. So my little boy was about one. Reese mm -hmm. wasn't born yet. Yeah. But I remember both of us were like, "It's okay. We can do it." And then it took me a while. It took me, you know. I mean, then we were like, "Okay, you know, yes, sir." You know, we're brand new guys. But it took me a few years to realize that no one, you don't get a medal for how much trauma you've seen. But when you're a new firefighter, you think that's a badge of honor. Like, I, oh, I'm going to see all the nasty sh shit. You know, some of these guys even take pictures of it and share them on social media and lose their jobs because they're fucking idiots. But, you know, that, like you said, that's seared in. So you have to really think about whether it's a back injury or whether it's a brain injury, a memory injury. Like, if there's a way of avoiding seeing horrible shit, like, I've gone to people that rotted in trailers that were in, you know, I wrote about the one, the homeless woman in the in the woods. None of my crew needed to see that. I saw it. And that's, it's only in this brain. It's not in their brain. So that was kind of, you know, from, from Terry, me paying it forward there too. But, you know, understanding when we all have to be all hands and we have to cut someone out because they're still alive, we're all going to see what we see. 
but the the less trauma you can expose your crews to as a leader, the better, in my opinion. Yeah, it's really hard to do though. You know, I'll tell you what though, the things that the trauma is an effect has an effect, but the thing that's gotten me more is the surviving people that are. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, probably about a, know, a year ago, we had a. I was working Disney had a cardiac arrest mm-hmm. of a five or six year old little girl and uh, dressed as Snow White. You know, as we got there, the little girl's wearing a Snow White oh, outfit. Oh, goodness. And she's in cardiac arrest and doing CPR on a little girl wearing a Snow White. In the middle of Disney. Going to the hospital too, going to Chalk. And then hearing the mom saying, it's okay, baby, you know, go to, go to grandpa, go to grandpa. It was hard not to get emotional and tear up in the back of an ambulance. What was you know? the disease process behind that? Uh, she had cerebral palsy, you know, but she aspirated. Right. And they yeah, couldn't get so. it out, you know. And then hearing the families wail when they told that there's nothing they could do. Mm-hmm. That's what gets me more than seeing anything. You can see, anything I've seen, that's got me more than, than, that, than seeing a dead person or seeing tra- trauma is hearing the after effect of a loved one. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I had a call, and I f- forgive me anyone that's listening, if you heard this story probably multiple times now, but it was a guy who was like in his late 20s, was going to Disney in Florida, went to take his dog to the local kennel that they have there, and just dropped you know, brain bleed. And the code could not have gone better. Like I was you know, lead medic on that, but it was everyone else just found where what needed to be done and they all just kind of all went to it it was the most beautiful code i've ever seen everyone did everything they had but it was a brain bleed the guy wasn't going to come back so we you know we take him there you know the i think the er people actually told the family because the family were around and what was disgusting about that is and i've told this before too while we're working this code this disney facility is still checking people in and their dogs while we're working a code in their foyer i mean disgusting but anyway so we get there, I'm at the hospital, I'm typing up the report, and literally from me to the stove is where the grieving room is. Mm-hmm. This is where the EMS report room is. And it's not a room, I'm just out on a desk in the hallway. So, I mean, that's that's what sticks with me. It's not the guy, I don't see the guy's face, but I hear the fucking wailing of that family when they were told that their husband slash son didn't make it, and I'm the medic that tried my best to save him, and you know, angel of death over here, never had a code, that I've ever saved. Pre-code, yes, I've never saved the code. And I'm typing up another one. Another fucking person didn't make it despite what the textbooks told me. That was, that was, that sucked, man. It really did. It's, uh, there are two hand-embroidered plaques, you might call them. One was at Station 4 and the other one was Station 2, I think. But I was on a call one time where this guy was in a full arrest. We showed up. We're doing CPR. Medics show up. Get a rhythm going. Get him stabilized. Send him off to the hospital. And it it was always unusual to find out that somebody survived. Mm -hmm. It was rare. Despite what they tell you in the MT and medic school, where it, it seems forgive like me, everyone's Forgive me, it survive. was Station 7. 
It was Station 7, and who were our medics? It was either Threes or Headquarters. But like three weeks later, this knock on the front door at Station 7. I was, a, I was on probation there. It was my last three months. Mm-hmm. and No, it was my third four-month period, second four-month period. I was with Buddy Campbell, Rudy Padilla, and a guy named Vic Brown. And uh, I remember Vic. I remember Vic too. Yeah. So we're just had lunch. We're sitting there. There was this knock on the door, and this gal shows up and she goes, "My father would like to come in and say hi to you guys." And I'm like looking at the guy, and I'm like, "Because you know, probationary. You know, I'm answering the door all the time." Mm-hmm. And uh, I recognized the guy's face, but I couldn't figure out where I knew him from. And he comes up and he shakes my hand and he's like, you might not remember me, but you were doing CPR on me about three weeks ago. And I'm like, holy smokes. I remember how you taste. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I still got the hair the guy in my mouth. Comes in, the guy comes in and he's got this. Uh, bug button. <laughs> while, he, while he was through recovery, he was doing this embroidery stuff. He picked up like stitching. And he, I remember that. It's a Station 7. That station little, 7. That little plaque that's in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a that's little... That's for you? That was for me. I do remember Me and that. the guys on Station 7. And there was another one. I think it might have been... It was either Threes or Headquarters. Because that's... Those are... That, back then, there was... It would have had to have been Headquarters. Because it was only Headquarters, Fours. No, it could have been Fours. It might be at Station Fours. Because there was only three medics in the city at the time. Four... No, it was only two medics. He's arguing himself now. Yeah. Where were the horses <laughs> sleeping? Was there a stable at fours at the time or? There was a stable at eights. Okay. <laughs> Very stable, stable. I, I remember seeing that at uh, Station 7. Yeah, it's a yeah. kind of a brown it's not color. It's in kind the of a t- it's, TV room, yeah? Yeah. 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 yeah, it's in the head, head, Station 7 TV room. Yeah. It's either at, and then there's another one at, I think it's at Station 4. Wow, that's a long ways. Yeah. But back then, you waited for medics like, a long time. Yeah. Remember that code we had at the uh, uh, La Palma place? I already know, yeah. It came in as BLS and it that wasn't was, BLS. That was the first time ever my wife, Melissa, did a ride along with us. Yes, that's right. And She's wearing the brush jacket, I remember. Uh-huh. We showed up at a... Oh, sorry. Too far from the mic. We showed up at the convalescent home and it just came as an unconscious person. And we were joking around on the headsets on the way there. Well, the reason she's not talking is because she's dead. Because if you just stereotype <laughs> calls at a convalescent home and an unconscious person, usually that's what it is. I just took vitals when? Uh, eight hours ago. What did you take? The rectal temp. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then yeah, the, the story is every convalescent home you go to, oh, five minutes ago they were just talking to us and they were fine. And they'll be trying to take a blood pressure on a person that is deceased. Mm-hmm. Um, With rigor. Yeah, so that's completely unnecessary, but that is a story we get to all the time. So this is the first time my wife, Melissa, is doing a ride-along with us, and we get this call, and I think it was you that grabbed the AED, James. Um, Because I wanted to be a medic, so I was on it. Because James wanted to be a nurse (laughs) so bad. Um, But the normal thing is we bring oxygen, and we would bring an EMT box, which is really a bunch of Band-Aids and some bandages. But we brought the AED on this call you're in the backboard didn't we i think we were ready ready. 
but so obviously we were a BLS rig at the time. We put a our backboard in. I don't think so. No, it would have been oxygen and AED and a the box. And the, yeah, and the EMT box. That so been it. we get there and this woman is unresponsive and right away, now my wife has got high heel shoes on and I threw a brush coat on her. Um, but because she's got the jacket on, I guess that the staff at the convalescent home thought that she works with us too. So she was trying her best to stay out of the way and hide. Um, but yeah, we tore her nightgown open and put the pads on her and we're doing CPR and shocking her. And I think it'd been a fireman for what, a couple of years, three or four years, three years at the time. And this was the first time that Melissa actually saw us going on a call and doing something. So, and we had done it enough at that time that it was like a well-oiled machine and, um, I don't know from the outside perspective, but for me, it seemed to go pretty well and we all knew what we were doing and things were going pretty well. And we upgraded the call. Terry, you were on the radio, James and I were doing the CPR and doing the AED. Um, what was key is that that one decision to bring the AED, this is what a four or five story building. Yeah. It, it would have been whether a, she made it or not. A three or four minute round trip to run back down and grab the AED. So I guess the model of the story here is... It was is, a BLS ALS call. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it wasn't even the on The model of the story is if you one. have equipment, bring it with you. Yeah. It does so it, no good sitting on the rig. Exactly. I remember going on the Alpha... That was when the AEDs were brand new. Mm-hmm. That was like... That? Were you there? There's the Alpha Tell me more over about there that. on uh, Romnia and State College. The lady was over there and she ended up having a bleed and coded. That does sound familiar, actually. Yeah. Yeah. She's At the apartments? A, yeah. I yeah. went to a hemorrhage in Orange County. It was, it was definitely a hemorrhage because the guy shot himself in the head and the pistol was lying right they next to him. They tend to bleed oh, a lot. Yeah, yeah, we, yep. we didn't get that information until yeah. we were standing there in front of him. But that was that call was the first time that Melissa had seen anything like that before. And the next day, she was a little bit shell-shocked. And she goes, well, how did you guys know what to do? And I'm like, babe, remember all the school that I went to and the academy and the years with the training? And that's so we can do what we do. And we were and t- Team America World Police. That's right. We were the UN truck company. <laughs> that was awesome. But we made it happen time and time again but i think for melissa that was the first time she got to see like oh we actually do make a difference and it's not we're playing checkers at the station like everyone mm. thinks why is there well, a fire engine if, in my ems call uh-huh. you know you you're on the freeway and you sit there and you're wondering what in the hell everybody wants to stop and watch and see what's going on and i'm like every time i'm on the freeway i never look mm-hmm I could I, at this point, I don't want to see. I, I don't want to yeah. know about it. I but don't want to like, see it. It's like, I don't care. But, it, but it's like, there's this morbid side of people. And then there's this curious side of people that, like, Melissa, that day bit off more than she wanted to really chew. Oh, yeah. And it's like, you want to see, but you don't want to see. It's the curiosity of it. It's like those those uh, the horror movies, not not the ghosty ones, but mm-hmm. the slasher, murder, torture, mm-hmm. a group of high school kids ones that people seem to really, you know, love. Mm-hmm. Like to me, I never understood that. I, I was into it as well for a little bit as a later teen, but I mean, I know you guys might be different, but to me, I can't think of anything worse than watching a recreation of some of the shit that we see and it being termed as entertainment. Oh yeah, no. Any, I used to be a big fan yeah, of The Walking Dead. It's not real. The Walking Dead. When it becomes real, it's a whole different issue. 
the other gory type movies with the zombies and running around and it got to a point where it was like, okay, you know what, you guys do a great job of making this look realistic, but I've already seen enough of this shit, so I don't need to see any more. And I, to this day, do not know. I think I watched most of the seasons of The Walking Dead, but it got to the point where it was just too gory and too real, and that was enough for me. Well, I mean, it's a perfect example. So there's that scene in Walking Dead with the dude with the baseball bat. Yeah, that's when I stopped watching. Yeah, and down the road when I was at Station 8 at Anaheim, we had a gang incident where a kid was clubbed to death with a baseball bat. So do I want to see The Walking Dead? Fuck no, I don't want to see The Walking Dead. It happened two um, blocks from our station. And The Walking Dead's... The portrayal of that is pretty damn accurate. Um, and I think that in our profession and many other professions, you just don't need to see it anymore. It's, it's, it's not making the show or the movie any better I'll tell you for what. me. My brother-in-law is... Um, well, he was a cop, yeah? No, my brother-in-law used to work for AT&T. So one of the times he was working, he was... Um, working on the the, the the comm lines and some lady ran out of a house yelling for help and apparently guy that lived in the house offed himself with a shotgun so my brother-in-law went in there thinking you know he didn't know what was going on until he saw the body but he was vividly remembers everything about it so it's one of those things where that was one incident one incident that is he remembers everything about it, mm-hmm. as opposed to us having multiple, multiple, multiple incidents. So people that see stuff on the side of the road, that morbid curiosity, you know, it's all fine and dandy until you actually see something you don't want to see. Mm-hmm. Or and or you cause an accident fucking looking in the first place, and then well, you add more bodies to it. And you slow traffic down, and you just create more problems. With and anger dicky. But, yeah, but the, the, the visual end is the, uh, it's the coup de gras. Everybody's kind of curious about it mm-hmm. until they see it, and then they... Well, that's the same as all the tourists want to come to Africa and they want to see a lion make a kill until they see a lion make a kill and it's horrific. And right. there's bones crunching and the animal is screaming and crying while it's being eaten. And it's yeah, It doesn't die terrible. right away. No, they, they don't die. There's not a sniper that kills it nicely right. through the brain. Right. It gets slashed and torn apart. Right. And, and it's, it's eaten from horrible. the butt side into yeah. the, the other side. And... You can't unsee it, and you can't unhear it, and the smells, and this, it's, it's terrible. Right. And for some reason, I guess, as humans, we're fascinated by that, and everyone wants well, to see it. We are. We're curious to a point. To a point. But that same call we brought Melissa with us on, I mean, bless her soul, this sweet young lady was like, and she's going to be okay, Right. And we have to tell her that you know convalescent homes Chances are aren't like good. heaven's waiting rooms. And if you've already died and we defibrillate you, you may get a pulse back. But the reality is all we've done is buy you a little bit of time, but nature's going to run its course. Um, as sad as it is, like if you get too involved with each one of these calls that we go on, it will tear you to pieces so you have to see it as like a surgeon would where it's almost like a a science project and not a human each time it's business it's business and that's our job and we do it and we do it as best we can and we follow the protocols and the rules and the training that we have and if things work out they work out and if they don't work out 
and you did the best you can and you followed everything that you were taught, then it's not your fault. But it's hard to see it like that. Well, oh, that's, why you, that's why you got to... I think that's why another reason why training is so important. Obviously, it's us being able to do our job. But from a mental health point of view, if you have one of those tragic incidents and you know that you weren't prepared and you freaked out and you couldn't find the right equipment and you didn't needle decompress the right place, you didn't get the tube, whatever it was, now you got to live with that. If you've got your training and you, like you said, everything went right and you still lost them, at least there's that element of peace where you're like, I did everything I can, it was out of my hands. That's the advantage of uh, spending your career on a busy unit. Mm-hmm. Um, you are in the business all the time. And uh, some of the best medics out there were guys that were I mean, they were just hammered with work all the time. There was never, I mean, that be that would be the, if Anaheim's made some mistakes, I think it's they've made every medic unit in the city a medic unit or every unit a medic unit for the most part. So you're going to get guys that never get the volume of serious calls that they need to get to be on, ed, to be, they be on point all the time. And the guys that were like, Back in the day when it was medic four four three and four four, I mean it was headquarters and station four, mm-hmm. and they were running twenty thirty calls a day, and they were constantly at it. But it's the same thing for any any type of work. I mean whether you're on twenty one or whether you're on truck one or whether you're on engine whatever four, you know if you're on a busy unit, you're going to be better prepared to deal with that emergency. Oh, it's a perishable skill. All of them. Yeah. Hose, yeah, lane ropes, hose, everything. even catching a hydrant. Yep. Something simple like that. Yeah, you got to stay on top of it. Yeah. I was talking to Danny and Todd, the interview I did. Danny was the fireman who made a rescue in Atlanta and then got written up by his department because they called it freelancing, which it absolutely wasn't. But, um, you know, it, sometimes as the training evolutions kind of become almost like uber fictional rather than us focusing just like i said on sometimes you just need repetition that over and over again because i know my brain is terrible if i don't do ropes over and over again i forget systems i forget how to bind someone to a stokes basket i forget that stuff so well skills are like everything else you either use them or you lose them well skills also depending on not only a company officer but individuals themselves to be able to maintain those skills you know, it's easy to get comfortable and just, or lax a days ago, and just say, yeah, hey, it's like, I took a class with, uh, out in um, Palm Desert. It was a, one of the speakers was the guy who was pumping the fire the day the Charleston, South Carolina fire. I had a couple of Charleston firemen on the show. Travis yeah. Howes and uh, David Griffin. David Griffin. He it was, was pumping David. the fire. Yeah, he's on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And he... Say to himself, he was lax a days ago. He didn't bother to. He was an upgrade engineer, so upgrade. You should be prof, the, the the thought is you're proficient to be able to move up to that spot and do the job. And he wasn't able to, and he wasn't able to get water to the guys that were inside, and led to the fatalities. One of the contributing factors. Us as individuals could overcome that by taking accountability for ourselves and 
what we need to know, what we need to do, what we need to learn. Um, you can always depend on others to be saying, hey, spoon feed us what we need to do. <clears throat> We're professionals. It's, it's both again. It's the same argument with the COVID thing. It's like mm-hmm. you need ownership and you need to work for a department that provides an environment that encourages training, that has the resources, mm-hmm. and both of those together. And But then, like we said before, and a tr- hiring standard where you end up with men and women that also want to own their skills. Yeah. They're not going to be running from fires or never draw their gun. Yeah. You, know? you know, it's funny you talk about that. And I got promoted to captain about age 30... I was probably like 32, 33, because I hired on at 21. So most of my engineers were always older than I was. I had Jerry Laird. I had Mark Wilmoth. I'd get these guys that were, um, the guy that was always, that always worked at Disneyland, um, um, Marion Brower. I'd get these old guys, and I call them old guys. They'd come in and work overtime for the day. But you know what the first thing? The first thing they would do in the morning when they checked in, hey, I'm going to pull the truck around back and put the stick up. These guys were Professional. first thing. These guys all came from pumpers. The first thing they would say is, hey, I'm, if you don't mind, I'm going to pull the pull the truck around, and put the stick up. That's they a hadn't been on hadn't been on a truck in who knows when, but they knew they were they were knowledgeable enough to know that. They didn't want to be caught with their pants down. And they wanted to be ready no matter what came on that day. Mm -hmm. And good old guys that, you know what? It may not be my vehicle, but I'm going to make sure today that there's not going to be anything false through cracks. Mm -hmm. Even different engines, different engine compartment contents, different, you know... um, but when I yeah, monitors all that stuff, yeah, the first truck that I was on was the old truck one, which was a four section Seagrave. It was it moving the wind about ten feet up there? <clears throat> so it was like it was it was the it was the rig that you had to when you would jackknife it, you had to manually pull the outrigger out and run the screw jack down yourself. Oh, to get it. Oh, wow. Okay, to stabilize it. Yep. And you had to cut the wooden pipe to get the water with the axe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the truck. <laughs> the plug. <laughs> hey, that was my truck. I was I was the engineer on that truck. So when I we go to the, sho- the shopping center in the morning for by lunch and dinner, I'd always put the stick up by myself. Mm-hmm. So it was like you had to pull it out. You had to you had to go through the whole routine with it, right? It's like climbing the hundred foot, you know, unsupported aerial. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you the minute you start, you don't do it. It's like every other skill. You will, oh, your absolutely. legs will, your legs will lock up on you at some point. You, you may not, you may be able to climb that thing and come back down, but two days from that day, your legs are going to be charred horse like crazy. Well, I found that in my last place. Like we had, you know, we were on a truck and it was, you know, God forbid anyone called that truck to actually do real work, but, you know, every single. Well, it looks shiny driving down the street. Pretty cool waving everyone, huh? Yeah, well, it wasn't even that shiny. It was green, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I would climb all the time. And my thing was, mm-hmm. I don't want the, the, the last time to have climbed to have been you know, a long time ago. I don't want to be the next time I climb 
Dude, to be me, me and you both. Yeah, to be you know six floors up to mm-hmm. a mother and child that are hanging out of a building, and I've got pucker factor. And my knees are wobbling, so I'm not you know I of course I I start breathing heavier when I get near the top, but that diminishes the more I climb. Yeah, when I was the engineer, I put the stick up, get it at the right angle. That's Terry's old truck right there. Hey, thank you, Joe. See it. Okay, well, this is not fair because <laughs> the people that are listening, there's like an open cab. Mm-hmm. It looks well, ours was an open cab Seagrave. It was, yeah, there you it, go. Was, it was like, the, it was like a, uh, it was, it was a beaut. Well, the one that we were on before we got the tiller, <clears throat> that was open rear cab. Uh-huh. So that was, the, I guess, the next the, click up from the what till, you did. The tiller bucket back there was truly a bucket. You had to wear a helmet when you were riding. You that had thing to wear a helmet back there, just in case. When you put the helmet, did a cat when, flies when you, out. When you put the tiller bucket. You had to flip the tiller bucket over to get the ladder out of the bed. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ! It was cool. Did you ever like get stuck in there and they flipped you over too and you fell out? No, hey, Terry was at the front of the siren like this. <laughs> That's how you started it up. <laughs> so that's that's the old, the old Buster Keaton movies. He's hanging off the side holding his helmet. <laughs> but James, what you were saying, like, you know, if you're a welder or a tradesman or a, a plumber and you sweat pipe and every once in a while or half the time your pipes have a leak in it or nothing's plumb or it looks like shit or you're a welder and your welding looks like bird shit all over the place, like people will judge you on your work. And people will hire you based on your work, but then you become a fireman or a cop or you're in the military and now all of a sudden it's like you can't judge someone on their work or their work (laughs) ethic because that's harassment or that make them feel less special. But the end of the day is we're all tradesmen Mm -hmm. and our craft is fighting fires. And if you're not... I guess working on that every day or training or practicing, then you not only are you doing yourself a disservice, but the men and women sitting next to you on that rig, you're doing them a disservice. And you're doing the city the city a disservice and the department and the citizens too. So I I don't think there's a good enough excuse for not training or not being an expert in what you're doing and not doing it like a professional. And that goes from physical fitness to memorizing your medic protocols and hose layers and vent operations and flow path and everything else. And just knowing your equipment, your SCBA, they're always changing. And the department next to you, they have different SCBAs. So if you're not getting on top of that and learning their equipment and how you can use it with our equipment, you're not a professional. And you shouldn't call yourself a professional firefighter then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And you know, you said about the, you know, the plumber and the carpenter. I made that that observation a lot. The difference between them and us. And there are some incredible carpenters and plumbers, and you know, everything else. But when they screw up, what happens? A cabinet falls off a kitchen wall. The house gets flooded. When we drop the ball, people die. So it's night and day compared to most traits and and you said about we fight fire yeah that's part of what we do and we do ems calls and we hang off ropes to do rescues and we dig trenches and you know we do extrications and i mean we're jack of all trades master of none so for you to have the arrogance to think that you don't need to train in a 24-hour shift because you've done it before yeah yeah i mean it don't have to be i'm not that you have to have rest and recovery it's so important as well but every time you take your gear off the night you know the morning you go home 
you sure as shit need to be better in some way, shape, or form than you were when you arrived that morning before. Yeah. And I guess the difference is if you hire a carpenter and he builds you cabinets or you hire a plumber and he sweats pipe for you and the pipe leaks, well, you cancel the check and you have him come back out and fix it and you certainly don't hire him again. But I think for the taxpayers and the citizens and the men and women that you work with, if you do a lousy job or you blow it, um, they don't get to cancel the check and they don't get to get new cabinets. They... uh they get to buy a new house and they get to replace a pet or, and I mean, there's no replacing a family member. So I guess the consequences of a mess up in our profession are a whole lot worse and longer lasting than in other professions. But at the end of the day, it's, you can be a professional and you can bring it every time you get on that rig or you can half-ass it through training and everything else and that will just show up later but when you're doing that all you're doing is making the men and women you work with look bad and the fire service and your city and the department and everything else so yeah it's well, you mentioned lives the other thing that people forget about is possessions i'm not talking about yeah. tvs that you can replace and you know mp3 players but that photo album that has all the black and white pictures of your great-grandparents or your kid's first drawing that was on the, the fridge. I mean, all these things are... Draw wing. There's no R in the middle. Drawing. Draw, drawing, y'all. The, the drawing. But yeah, yeah but you can't replace that too. So every, I like drawing. <laughs> every every th- minute that we don't do our job, it may not be a life, but it's someone's lifely, you know, their, their world that, that's burning up and we could prevent that, you know, with aggressive roof operations, with aggressive hose line operations, with, you know, just intelligent door opening and closing, whatever it is. But that all takes diligence and that takes, you know, like you said, owning your profession. Uh, Joe's like, sorry, he's opened up a beer and now he's sitting here and he's looking at it and holding it up like it's a glass of wine and smelling it. And then he throws his head back and pounds half of it like he cared what it was at all. But there you go. I do care. What a connoisseur. You care that there's alcohol in it. Make it sound bad when you say that. Dickie's, I mean, uh, yeah, like I'm above that at all. (laughs) I just don't have one in front of me. Terry's got a thought. Better, better get it out there before you forget. <laughs> He's before forget. I forget. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> what was I saying? Oh, I would just say to uh, the younger people out there today that are either considering the fire service or already have uh, aspired to be a fireman, you got hired somewhere and you're lucky enough to be on the job somewhere that... Uh, if you don't, if you're not in love with the job, go find something else out to do. Mm-hmm. Because, because if you don't love it, you're not connected to what the whole job is about to begin with, which is service. And uh, no matter amount amount of money that you make isn't going to make your joy get to the level you're looking for and you're just wasting your time somewhere. So if you don't love it, find something else to do because you're, you're just taking up space that somebody else could be just enthralled with their 
what they have to look forward to. Yeah, you, you, I, I'd I'd go back tomorrow if I could. If my body was capable, your body's no, probably more capable than Dickie and I. <laughs> Yeah. There's seeing all three of you walk to the toilet. There's, there's I'm gonna throw my app in tomorrow because I'm feeling pretty good about the competition right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I did apply recently. Yes, let's hear the story. Oh my! God. Did you have that majestic beard when you applied? I did not. No, I think yeah, came in and had a, a must- cleanup. I had a rather large mustache at the time. Which mustache, was, mustache. Um, no, nah, you know it's a. Uh, yeah, you either feel like you still got something to offer or you don't. And how old were you and how much time in the fire service had you had when you stepped into this new uh, organization? I was, at the time, I was probably 62 or 3. And I applied. Hey, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone heard that. Was, that, that was close, Joe. Joe yelled just as he's going to the bathroom for the fifth time now. <laughs> fifth? Was that 10 years ago? Yeah. No. Get him a shoehorn for Christ's sake. No. He's struggling with whatever he's trying to push out. I don't know. The poor guy. This is not an isolated evening. This is every damn time. I mean, this is what? We've been here two hours, three hours, and he's gone five times. Imagine we're going to a 24 hour shift with him. His colon is like six flags. Either in the. (laughs) He's either in the fridge or he's in in the can, one of the two. (laughs) <laughs> but the job is the job is too uh if you don't love it, I mean really love it, then you should really find something different. I agree hundred percent because you have to. to because do it, to because leave your the family sacrifice every third day. The sacrifices that you physically have to go through, the things that you have to give up with your family. Um and I could go on and on and on about everything else, the things that you'll see the things that you'll never be able to forget, I would do it all again if I had a chance. I mean, how many of, Terry, you have three daughters. Um, how many of their soccer games oh, and birthdays? I missed dance recitals. I missed everything. All of those things I missed that it all. you miss. I missed it all. And then I, in the later years, the forced hiring or the mandatory hires, you when realize hired, what it's like Jesus. to become a deadbeat father when you tell your kid, oh, it's your birthday tomorrow and dad's going to take well, you, you know, to XYZ we, uh, and you have to work and yeah. you flake on your kid again. We we did we did Christmas on virtually probably anywhere from the 20th to the 30th of December. Yeah, I've, I've telling Ty, this is the last two years of the first time I've ever actually had Christmas with him yeah. on Christmas Day. My, my family, we... My kids would always say, well, when are we doing Christmas this year? You know, mm-hmm. that was just something that was just, you know, not a big deal. But I miss, you know, anniversaries, wedding day, you know, all kinds of stuff. But we love it. But at the end of the day, my mom, my wife and my kids knew what it meant to me. So therefore, it was never, you know, there was something that everybody lived with. And, that, and that's why I'm so aggressive with the administration of fire departments because they've got a group of men and women that sacrifice so much so we owe it to them to create an environment for them to thrive as much as possible the same way as the green berets and the seals and all these other organizations that have that they understand rest and recovery nutrition and they have all the good equipment and the good training and therefore they create incredibly you know efficient and effective operators and the fire service, I feel, and the, and the law enforcement community and corrections and dispatch, 
we do the same level or ask to do the same level, but a completely opposite environment where we're set up to fail. And it's not a poor us. It just is when you look at it, work week, when you look at pay of a lot of these departments, when you look at training well, when, and equipment. What, I mean, just look at, uh, look at success rate in the field when it comes to full arrests. I don't care how good you are. You don't get to, you don't get to be the one that calls the shot of who lives and who dies. Mm-hmm. And for us to take the responsibility for that is kind of misgu- yeah, misguided, to say the least. That's a hard lesson to learn, but, that you're but, not God. No, that, and that's exactly right. And I've learned that lesson later on more in life because of a greater respect for things. Higher power. Yes. And, uh, you know, I've, re- I've realized that... that my limited abilities are extremely limited. And I'm thankful that I'm not in charge of deciding things like judging people or deciding who gets to stay and who gets to go. Mm-hmm. No, it's, that's not of my pay grade. So therefore, you know, you go out, you do the best you can every time. But... but you take no responsibility for life or death yeah because it is out of your hands again as long as you as long as you did what you were trained to do take yeah thing. yeah you go out that you, is in your hands you go out there you do the best job you can every time and you know what you 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 put your best foot forward and if it's not good enough that day it's not because of what you did it's that everybody's got a you pull that jar of or that container of sour cream out of the refrigerator, it's got a, a date of expiration on it. Mm-hmm. We all have those dates of expiration. Yeah. But they're not printed on our foreheads. So therefore, when something happens that's like out of the clear blue sky, and somebody dies of an aneurysm or a blood clot that makes its way to somewhere, mm-hmm. you can't take responsibility for that stuff. No. That's, that's hard, div- though. That's divine. It's hard because in school, we're taught you do A, B, and C and you'll save It's not hard because, like you said earlier, you did everything that you could have up to the training and the standards because you did the best practice around up to the knowledge that you had. Yeah. Anything more, if you couldn't, if you did everything you can within those parameters and it didn't work, at least you have the, you know, the thought that, uh. You did the best you can. Yeah, and that and but, that is a saving grace. Yeah, it is. But like you said, the grieving family around you is still something you also have to deal oh, with. Just because you know that you did the right thing. That I had to one time on a call. We had a pediatric death on a vehicle accident, and Spanish-speaking family, and I'm the one that had to tell the father who showed up after the fact that the infant had died, and. Um, it is the hardest thing. It is no matter what hearing them or actually having to have a talk with them is very difficult. But you go back on the same thing, you know, you did everything you could, yeah. you know, and that's, that is a saving grace. It is, if you've done, if you put your best foot forward and you did everything within your, you know, your knowledge and skills, what else can you do? If you sat back... <clears throat> And you look through the, the totality of your career. If you spend enough time doing this, you, uh, you'll have calls that make absolutely no sense. Oh, absolutely. 
And I can, I can, I was just sitting here thinking of two of them mm-hmm. that, um, a young lady had jumped over a, a wall, had left high school. The families, they have a key that was hidden in the backyard, so they jumped this grape stake fence. And uh, the daughter jumped the fence fine, but her friend jumped the fence and got impaled by the grape stake. Mm-hmm. We get there, can't see anything physically wrong with her, but she's going downhill. She's got to bleed, obviously. But... You do everything you can, but you, but it's like no one could see what was wrong with this young lady, and she still died. Yeah. I, I had a, with Paul Erskine, I think it was, we had a couple who, you said about the, the gas running out. It was on, I forget, probably the 5 or whatever freeway it was, 22. Um, and uh, this car stalled out. 2 a.m. whatever it was and the the power gone it was it was just blacked out you know chassis sitting on the um the uh, freeway and this car plowed into them 70 80 miles an hour the car that was stored out the people had just left it there they'd run away so who knows what the history was there the couple that plowed into them i mean it was you know the most horrific wreck refusal I shit you not. They even refuse to go unharmed, unscathed. And yet I've had ones where it was a four-way stop sign, blow through intersection, not a fast wreck. And the person is dead as a fucking dodo in the car and barely any intrusion or anything. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you, you never know. It's crazy. You it's never know. Day, it's not your day. And if it is, it is. Yeah. I mean... There's people that walk away from the stupidest things, and then there's people that <clears throat> husband and grandma and grandpa in their Volkswagen van heading northbound on the I-5 when a truck loses his tire he bounces. and starts rolling down the I-5 south. This is before K-Rail. They used to have like the little metal guard. It was maybe two and a half, maybe two feet off the ground. So as this big truck tire is generating its momentum going down. It was a wagon wheel. It starts bouncing. (laughs) It was a wagon wheel. Yes, it was a wagon wheel. Generating its own inertia starts bouncing. It clears the rail. It's still doing... 50 plus mile an hour. That's the thing. It comes off the vehicle at 50, 60 miles an hour. It's... A heavy, heavy ass yeah. wheel. It's yeah, a, it's towards a traffic. That's moving it's, eighty it's, miles an hour. The opposite three, direction. Three hundred pounds of uh, of rubber and steel, and it bounces over the freeway thing and catches grandma and grandpa in the van, mm-hmm. kills grandpa and maims grandma. Awful. I remember when it's, when I was still and, and they and they 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 weren't looking for trouble. Mm-mm. They just happened to be on the freeway. The wrong place at the wrong time. Wrong place, wrong time. Do you remember Fraction this? of a second difference, and everybody walks away fine. Yeah, if you went back and made sure the door was locked, or whatever it was, but you can't play the coulda, what shoulda, if. woulda, or the what if game. We did that with the with those Street Racer kids. Yeah? Because that was right before Christmas. That's so the point. How many times? What if you just would have stopped at the light, or what if they would have taken a different way, or... yeah. Those remember the guys, are, remember the guys that had left the, um, what's that place over in Fullerton where they have the hamburgers? Inca, no. 
over there on uh, not the gay bar that you go to. Oh, <laughs> Joe's not gonna know any other places. It's like, well, I don't know any other <laughs> no, bars. You know the ham- no, you know those. I know <laughs> the hamburger places. <laughs> he you calls know yeah, the food places. The hamburger is, place over there where all the fast cars and sports cars will show up once once a week. Where off of what street? Oh, yeah. It's over there in Fullerton, off of Orange Thorpe. Orange Thorpe, um, Harbor. But like north of uh, the Orange Fair Shopping Center, like over in that area. Anyway, bunch of guys hang out over there. Guys in this hopped up little car, and he comes. Uh, he comes down the uh, the road, and uh, it's. Where those telephone poles are there, or not telephone poles, palm trees are, mm-hmm. at Lemon Street. When you're going on, when you go from Harbor. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. It's that section of freeway. Where you're, it's like an on-ramp between Harbor and Lemon mm-hmm. before you get on the freeway. And he goes through that thing at like mock speed because he's got one of them flipping haul-ass sports cars. Nitrous or something. With uh, him and his buddy in it. <clears throat> He gets so much air and he comes off and he hits those Mexican fan palm trees. He snaps the first one. But then it throws his car into a tumble and he hits the uh, the other ones. And Essentially, you have two fatalities inside the, this Holland-ass fast car. And uh, it's like all by themselves. No other... No one did anything to put them in this situation. It was totally self-induced. Yeah. Do you remember going to, I think you were trying to get to work. I got called for body recovery, but that motorcyclist that stopped on the off-ramp of, shit, what's the freeway that goes mm. east-west? 91. 91. Mm-hmm. Did a flip to bitch and then hauled ass back down the off-ramp. And we got called for motorcycle versus a car. And we get on scene like, well, where there's bits of motorbike there. Where the hell is this this guy? Yes, I, I was going from was on one roof, station right? to another. Yeah, he was and on a semi. My cell phone had died, and oh, the one that was on the semi roof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the, yeah. the helicopter saw him. Yeah, and I got stuck in traffic, couldn't get off the freeway, and this accident was up ahead, and it took forever because they were trying to find the body from a guy on a motorcycle, and no one knew where it was. And then eventually somebody saw blood trickling down. Not just blood, brain matter coming down the side. It was a, a big rig and the, the box on the back was white, I think. And the blood running down and people noticed and they pointed out. And that's how they found the body. He had gotten hit and flew up on top of this big rig. But I mean, it was hours and I was traveling between stations and now without a cell phone or a way to communicate to anyone. I got my ass chewed when I got to the station because we were brand new at the time, but... Um, I remember sitting at that thing going, holy shit. Well, I was on the Bronto for body recovery. Yeah. And we hadn't found, we didn't, it was right when we got on scene that people were starting to figure out where this dude was. I think the but helicopter had, was able to see it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. there was like a car like mine, like along the Sentra, and the passenger mm-hmm. seat was gone all the way back to the like seat post, basically. But the driver's seat was still intact. Like it took a chunk out of it. So this poor guy was all shook up, but they're like, where the hell is this guy? And the bike was basically disintegrated bits everywhere but yeah and then when we got there like oh he's up there and we went to basically bag him for the coroner i mean there wasn't a bone in that dude's body that was station station three had one like that they they grabbed him and took him to the hospital he was a traumatic full arrest 
but he was missing a couple parts. And uh, they couldn't find the parts. So they ended up bringing a dog out. And the dog found all the parts. I bet. I bet the dog did. <laughs> they brought out a cadaver dog. And there was like... <clears throat> I think any dog would have found it. Yeah, that's what I was referring to. It had to be especially they, they, wanted, they wanted to get it before everybody else found oh, it. Before every other dog. <laughs> before the train shih tzu came but in. Like, uh-huh. like, like they, sent, they sent those guys out there and said... I mean, they, you know how that works. They call the station mm-hmm. and say, hey, there's still something missing out there. You guys got to go find it. Mm-hmm. And these guys looked and looked and looked and looked and looked, couldn't find anything. That's the worst feeling, too, when you know yeah, something's it's out like, there. Mm-hmm. It's like, who knows where the, all the stuff ended up at. And if it's soon enough, you can use the thermal imaging camera. But the, but good, thing is not, they, then. the good thing is the dog found it all apart. So. Good I remember boy. going on one over there at 3-2 where the motorcyclist hit the side of a big rig. And we got there and... He was uh, face down, but toes up. If them, oh, yeah. picture that. <laughs> that sounds like a hip hop song. It sounds more like a Rubik's cube. <laughs> sounds like a night at Joe's house. Yeah, Dicky, were you on that poor guy? This this one this one haunts me to my day because it was just so fucking sad. Simple as that. But we were on again. I forget which freeway it was. It was a motorcycle, kind of like your one of yours, like a regular commuter, not not your Ducati, but the the old bikes. So this guy was basically A to B bike. He obviously wasn't, you know, crotch rocket, wasn't hauling ass. And it was busy, busy traffic. And some impatient female driver had sideswiped him trying to get into the HOV lane because she was not wanting to wait anymore. Mm -hmm. So she made the turn, knocked this guy underneath. But he fell between the front and back wheels of the big rig, the, the trailer part. Yeah. And the witnesses said, so maybe it wasn't you then, this poor guy got knocked off his bike but was not hurt, but he was scrambling trying to get out. Well, unbeknownst to the driver, there was a motorcyclist between his Julies. The traffic eased off ahead of him, so he started driving. So just when this guy was crawling out, like from navel back, it just uh, freaking got... ran over him, and he was... And navel is rig? belly button in America. Yeah. Belly button. Belly button. He was squashed belly. Like, a, like a pancake. But <laughs> oh, my God. It was just so sad because... Like I said, from that up, he was unscathed. He was doing good. And then we were talking again, like, give that poor dude two more seconds. He would have, would have been like a movie, like a near miss. And that's but it the wasn't. shoulda, coulda, woulda. Yeah. And that's, you know, the fragility of life. And that's what makes it so hard sometimes is you ask why. And there's no answer to that question. No, there's not. Guy going down the 91 freeway, westbound, just got done bowling. Probably had a few beers. We had a uh, brief sprinkle on the freeway. Black ice. And uh, no. Black guys? No. No, no not, uh, calm down. Black oh, ice. Sorry, fantasy. <laughs> Hello. Clarification. James said black ice. Black ice. In Florida, oh. we call that. When we get a little no. bit of rain with the, with the oil, we no, call no. it black well, ice. It wasn't, that wasn't the situation at all. He was, uh, he was going down the freeway about two in the morning and uh, again... Go figure. Two people on the freeway at the same time, and they just happen to find occupy the same space at the same time. <laughs> All at once. The only two guys on the whole flipping freeway. So this guy hits, brushes this guy, or he loses control. I forget which. I forget which happens. 
he may have lost control. Maybe he had a little bit of oil on the freeway because it was an early rain and we hadn't had any rain yet, so the oil lifted up. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway, he caroms off the right side of the freeway and he hits hard enough on that that his airbag deploys. He bounces off and he hits the center divider doing probably 50 mile an hour. Tears his aorta and dies right in the front seat. Just flat, not a mark on this guy's body. That's going to be a fast one too. If you're going to go, that's the way you want to go. But it was like, you're looking at this guy going, there's not a mark on this guy anywhere. How can he be dead? Mm-hmm. You know? And they load him up and take him to the hospital. And they said, Torres Aorta. Nothing you could do. That 91 is notorious, man. That was, one curve, isn't it? But it was like, that, but you think, okay, the airbag should have saved him, right? right. I know what you're in the no, the airbag yeah. deployed and there was, there was no my, second airbag to, shit on to save him. I had it's to stay like, in the rig. How do you get screwed that bad? Yeah. Do you That's that just character? wrong. Going on the ninety-one, raining was Andy. Was I was with us. with us. Andy Ingram. I was thinking about that, and then we were scared that we were going to get murdered every time a car went by. Waiting no, for this that. is. We were going on a call, on this pouring rain, dark as all hell. And, it was a uh, TC on the ninety-one freeway. And you never go over from East Street and go in towards Harbor, and a little little, little bit of a lip there, and the cars were in like the number two or three lane no flashers no lights and there are people standing outside just and I'm dri- little, except you come over the hill it's not so much of a hill it's just a little it's a little lip rise, on the yeah. and you come back down again and they were right there and we I don't want to say we were hauling ass because were you tilling? yeah You're I was tilling. tilling I was pissing with rain and we were going a safe speed to be traveling on the freeway but not to be traveling on the freeway and, and have slam to your stop within a hundred yards of Chris in this hill um, and I remember seeing this wreck with this car accident with there's two cars people standing outside all around him in the first two lanes and I remember seeing it going oh shit we're going to hit them now I'm in the back of the tiller so instinctively I want to steer to get out of the way but all I'm thinking then is if I turn to the left and Joe keeps going straight we're going to plow through this thing and maybe roll. So I just figured we'd just steam train this thing. Yeah, right through. suplex the entire and we, we could be in line and just and just hit it and maybe we'll fare better and hopefully the people get out of the way in time. But I remember you yelling at Joe to slow down or to stop and Joe's yelling like I'm trying to stop and I'm like in the back going, oh, fuck. Who is the other firefighter? Andy it was Ingram. Andy Ingram. And we oh, got to us. We came to I, a stop. I turned left. You turned, and then I followed you, and I think you got on the radio right away and said, hey, you better get CHP in here right now, and we call a traffic stop, and yeah. I don't know what the hell was, Joe was positioning the truck, and Andy jumped off so damn quick and got a bunch of flares and threw him out, like, and I remember thinking, because we were newer at the time, maybe five years on, and Andy just jumping out and grabbing those flares while you were doing your stuff, it was like... I was pissed. You were pissed. I was scared shitless. They had no flashers, nothing. Nothing. They were standing just, outside of the car. No lights on, no nothing. It's pitch dark at night, and these guys are standing in the middle of the freeway after a fender bender. It wasn't such a bad accident. You no, but that's killed that, everyone that's, there. That, that's, that's the thing about accidents is, and I've told my kids, 
nothing good happens on the freeway, especially late at night. So it's like, and I don't mean that in a a bad way as far as, you know, good or bad, but but if you're on the freeway and you get a flat tire, I told my kids, you drive to the off-ramp and you take the off-ramp. Drive on your rims. You can always I replace that. I tell you that too, yeah. And I you, can buy new I rims don't and care, tires. I don't care about the wheel. Mm-hmm. And I had my middle daughter one day calls me. I'm at the dentist office getting my teeth work done. Because I have such fine teeth, I was James. Gonna say, I knew that was Don't coming. Don't be jealous, James. <laughs> what is this dentist you speak of? <laughs> so, what is so, dental care? So guess where? Guess where she has a flat tire at? The 57 overpass to the 91. Oh, shit. not a nice place to be. <laughs> so where does she stop? There, midpoint. Oh, God. I'm like, what in the heck were you thinking about? I have told you all your life. Drive the flipping car off the freeway. That's like the equivalent of your daughter telling you, hey, I'm going to go on a date with a guy that rides a motorcycle and he dropped out of school and has a drug problem. But mm-hmm. don't worry and about he, me, And Dad. he can't afford good tires. Yes. <laughs> but, he's got a, but he's got a great personality. But he has a great personality, and I see a future for us together. He's a bad yeah. boy. So it's like, if you're on the freeway and you're not sure, pull your flipping car all the way over to the right and bury it in the mud on the side of the road and not worry about it, but... So tow trucks and AAA as yeah, well. Yeah. Like, and I'm, if you're not and if you can't get over any further, please get off the passenger side of the car. Don't step out into the traffic. That's a little PSA right there, huh? Yeah. I mean if you're ready, not smart like, enough, if you're not smart enough, take some advice. Get out of the passenger side of the car. From four guys that have done it long enough. Do not stop on the freeway. No, because drive on your room to a because gas you're station, assuming get off you're, the you're assuming that people are smart enough to, to see that you're getting out of the car and you're just you're writing checks that your ass can't cash. Do you remember that one what I was thinking when you started with the freeway story? It wasn't like a, a big deal. I wanna say it was even like a semi or something that had a wreck. But it Okay. Um but it was uh it was the middle of some crazy rainstorm that we had in in uh, California, and we're all there waiting. And CHP was all backlogged because they had call after call after call. So we're there waiting with this wreck, uh, and yeah. you kept hearing brakes locking up and cars like skidding towards us mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah, and you know people say like, "Oh, is it? You know, what's dangerous about fires? Is, is it you know firefighting? Is it the fires? Like, no, it's standing no, on it a freeway is the in a damn rainstorm. Freeway that scares me the most. Absolutely, because we have turnouts and we have scbas and we have helmets and we have training and boots and all these things to keep us safe from the fire we don't have anything on our rig other than the rig itself that can keep us safe from traffic mm-hmm. on the freeway well, and all the reflective vests in the whole world can't stop someone from driving drunk or texting and driving or falling asleep or just moth to the well, flames just the, the, people, the lights that we have mm-hmm. you know people being stupid in public I mean, that's why we have jobs. Everybody thinks that uh, the fire is the dangerous thing. No, it's trying to outsmart all the people that want to go around and don't want to be delayed by traffic problems or something else. People make bad choices in life. You can't outfigure people. 
Well, I mean, the fires, I guess, of our career, the easiest thing at once. Fire is fire the easiest fuel. thing to deal with. One of the, one of the hardest fires that. we had was the trading fire, remember? Yeah. <laughs> we almost, you can no, predict I mean, what the fire is going to do I mean, and you make can, an educated you, you guess. You can but, educated experience and all the, the stuff that you've ever gone through in life, and you can, you can at least predict where things are going to go. But you can't predict the human mind. Humans, it's cycles. And calls on the freeway are the ones that scare me. Well, read on me this, because I wrote about this in the book. Coming from a country, and we talked about this on the way over um, earlier with me and Dickie. In the UK, the test is extremely hard. It was when I was young. And to the point where usually, I looked it up, the average you know, British person passes it on the, like, the third or fourth try. You know, so you, there's That's all these... I'm not that smart. <laughs> But there's all these skills, like, you know, you have to do you know, the roundabouts and backing around a corner and parallel parking. And, you know, and if you, the, the margin for error is minute. So if you screw up a couple of things, you're done. Here, you know, your dad, whether he's a good or bad driver, takes you around a couple of times. You go to DMV at 16 years old. And, all right, congratulations, you're, it you're a driver. It didn't used to be that way. So what's your take of that? Because to me, coming from a different country, I would if say we made our, our driving test harder, maybe we could prevent some of these awful tragedies we've been talking about today. I'm not sure you can prevent them because most of it are caused by Distracted stu- driving. stupidity. But, but when I was in high school back in 1970s, early 70s, 50s, you had the football coaches were, were the ones that taught driver's ed. So they would they would take you out in a car. There would be usually three of you. And you would start off doing simple things. And then, you know, the, 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 the football coach would have an idea of where everybody's at in the group. And then maybe the second or third time you'd be, he would take you out in the freeway. And you would drive the freeway, and he would sit in the car to the to the right of you, and he would. You'd be brave for that job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I want those, but, those but two sets was, of pedals so I can hit the damn. But, but you break if I need to. But there was things that were taught. It's like for every ten mile per hour, you need to give a car distance. distance between you and the car in front of you, mm-hmm. or you um, adjust for weather. There was yeah, there was all kinds of things that were given to you that were like nice to know. You may not need them anytime soon, but you really need to kind of log these into your memory banks because it's it's, it's like important. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we pass out. I'm I'm in agreement with you. I think we make it far too easy because we don't like people not to pass in California. Everybody should have the right, right? Mm, well, Florida's awful. So California's, I'll, I'll take that on my state shoulders. Our, our driving is, Calif- I took it. Is, California, is, I mean, if you look at the people that drive in California, it doesn't take much to get a driver's license. And now you don't, I mean, you don't need anything in California for a driver's license. <clears throat> Unless so, you're a legitimate Englishman. Right. Because I went to the DMV and to get my Class E for Anaheim. And the number, the, the, hoops i had to jump through and i'm looking around going well yeah I, I, i'm a firefighter working for your fire department and you know you've got a room full of people that you know clearly are and this is not a, a slur at all but don't speak the language definitely are not working for a municipal department it was a nightmare absolute nightmare i, I mean they they refused all my 
immigration paperwork. I had to go to the freaking, you know, the DMV, I mean, the immigration office in LA to get some things taken care of for the DMV to give me a freaking license. Yeah. I, I, you know, bottom line is my dad was a truck driver. So I clearly knew how to drive long before I ever took that, sat in that DMV mm-hmm. driver's test, you know? Yeah, real time. You know, so, you know, when I spent time back on my grandfather's farm, when I was a youngster, I was driving a, a clutch three-speed on the tree, you know, Ford 100 around the farm on a regular basis. So I'd already learned how to back up a truck and a trailer before I ever had my driver's license. You know, there's lots of, there's, there's just so much stuff out there that you can get if you happen to be lucky enough to be in the right space and time to have that experience. Yeah. And we lose 40,000 people in the U.S. to wrecks alone. Um, James, real quick, and if you edit this out, I'll be very disappointed in you. When you worked in Anaheim, you drove a car that was a Nissan Sentra, mm-hmm. correct? Correct. What color was it? It was green. There was a license plate on the Nissan Sentra, was there not? Because yes. Because you're a good law-abiding citizen. Absolutely, because I don't like to break the rules. I'm a around, rule follower. Around that license plate, there was a frame. <laughs> what <laughs> did the frame on said license plate say? Well, there wasn't a frame initially, and then a frame magically a appeared. A frame appeared. <laughs> But what I'll let you tell say? the people listening. I, I think, no, no, James, James. I want you to say what the Richard, frame runs. I think it's fair to say that James was framed. Yes, I think he was. So. Most was did it say, I love a firefighter? I think it said, <laughs> and not think, I know for a fact that it said, my heart belongs to go. a firefighter. <laughs> which is funny because James was the firefighter <laughs> driving that car. And now my question, James, is, <clears throat> was it me? No, it was Joe. Really? Yes. You picked that guy mm-hmm. out of well, everyone. I mean, technically, I should have said I love two firefighters. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, that was one of my favorite things. So James doesn't make any apologies for what a weirdo he is. He used to wear <laughs> the transition lenses in his glasses. And he drove a tiny beat-up Nissan Sentra with about 200,000-plus miles on it. With a license plate frame that said, my heart belongs to a fireman. Which was put on by an African. Which is not put on by me, I don't think. It was put on by someone. It wasn't on there when I arrived in California. Oh, it wasn't? Mm -hmm. Well, that wasn't me. I don't Um, think so. I wasn't smart enough at the time. Because my ex had her own car. Oh, but anyhow, you used to roll up a session with us. And James, you never changed it. You had it forever. Because I, my heart did belong to a firefighter. Yes, and I'm right here. Joseph, <laughs> Miguel, Juarez, Albacoa, the second. <laughs> the second, the tenth. He's pretty inbred. Rapido um, Colon. But yeah, that was always funny. So James, you did have, <clears throat> I would say, the worst car in the entire Well, here's department. what was funny. We were surprised you made it to work every day. So let me put it into perspective. That car I traded in with 309,000 miles on the clock. Stick shift, which, you know, for Most Americans, that, that's drive. actually a big boy <laughs> car. A lot, yeah. <laughs> but everyone else had these lifted trucks Marker. with spinners and 
you know, shiny rims and a Winnebago. Not the only difference was in not, like not you, Terry. Not, not Terry. Every, not everybody. Not had Terry. A truck but like the that. difference was in 2010. I still have my car. Everyone else had all that shit repoed. So that was the difference. But you know what's funny <laughs> is, you didn't drive a fancy car. I didn't drive a fancy car. Terry, you certainly didn't drive a fancy car. The only one was. Joe. Joe had a Hummer. Well, Joe needed a Hummer to carry that body mass back Yeah, home, you know, so. the beefed up suspension and the big tires is what you need for it. Mm-hmm. Well, the tires have... Just to, on the front left the gross, side. Was, the gross vehicle weight on that thing, you know, with Joe in it was such that it had to have those oversized tires. It was excessive. I thought it was kind of embarrassing that it had wide load on the back and he had those cars following him with the flashing lights. Mm-hmm. The Fletchers? <laughs> the Fletchers. <laughs> the Fletchers. For everyone listening, Joe is not in the room right now. Yeah, so he's gone now. So. <laughs> <laughs> so it's fair game till he goes back. Yeah, the, guy, the, out, the, the guy that's out is the target. Yeah, he's on grinder. You'll never checking. be the last one never, to arrive to a party the and the first one to leave. <laughs> never leave the room. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, I guess I need, we're almost three hours in, so we've got to start thinking about how to wrap this up. So, um, man, we told some war stories. I don't know if we overlapped or not. Like I said, it was... Four hours last time, but I got a feeling this was some some new stuff. But any pass, not passing, any parting words, any for the last year, any moments of enlightenment that you want to share with the people on planet Earth before we close this up. Go for it, Terry. You know, I've uh, I've been retired now for roughly ten years, and. Uh, would love to be back doing the job again if I could. And I've often said that uh, to my Anaheim friends that if you don't want to work the mandatory shifts, all you have to do is let me know and I'd come in and work them for you. Mm-hmm. I'll work them at straight pay, even at a fireman's rage, no matter what position I have to sit in. But if you don't, uh, you know, I was I was really fortunate to have really good people to work with when I first hired on. And, uh, and they went downhill from there when you started becoming captain. <laughs> That's why he no, retired. <laughs> no, I mean, I had, I, I actually worked, a lot of the guys that were on the job when I came on were, were former military guys, guys that had armed forces guys for... Vietnam vets. Some of them were Vietnam, some of them were not. But, uh, you know, guys that were just real squared away, had a certain level of maturity about them. And, um, you know, I got hired when I was like 21 years old, so I wasn't by any stretch a mature guy. But um, my first captain was a guy named Randy Goldsmith. And uh, Randy at times would scare the crap out of me. I mean... That's saying something. He would scare the crap out of me at times. Not very often, but he, he got my attention very, very well. And, uh, you know, just a guy that wanted everybody to work hard, wanted everybody to do a good job, wanted whatever you did reflected on him, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, pride. Yeah, he had pride in what he everything we did. And if, if, if a call didn't go well, I mean, when we got back at two in the morning, he let us know about it. And, uh, you know, he was a great guy. To this day, I, I still. When we get, you know, when I we get together as a bunch of retired guys every once in a while, I always still walk up and give them a big hug and tell them I love them. You know, it's just I got I was really fortunate. 
really very fortunate. And I'm, and I'm thankful to this day of the opportunity that I had and the people that I got to work with. And, uh, you know, in spite of everything, I'd do it all again tomorrow if I could. And now I got this, I'm in a position now where I, I get to choose what I want to do. So for me, life's pretty flipping awesome. It's not perfect, but yeah. Do I have deficits? Yeah, I have some, some stuff here and there that I could be better at, I suppose. But, uh, you know, in the long run, no regrets. No regrets. None. Mm-hmm. You made a difference in the world. Well, I'll tell you what. I was I was a blessed person to have the opportunity to do what I did. Totally. And work with the crew that you and did. have you a fantastic crew to work with. <laughs> there, you go. there it is. There it is. No, you know, you just uh, you know, you hold people to a level of expectation. It's not that hard. It's really not. I mean, the fire service is pretty pretty flipping simple thing. You know, you have you have you provide good selection of your personnel, you provide good training, go out and you work at it, you go on lots of calls, you hone your skills. That's the key, is honing your skills. Not a lot of dead time, you know, to go out and just lay around and you know, you just work at it. Lots of calls is a very good thing. Mm-hmm. That's why we signed up. I used to say that I hated the slow stations. Well, all the stations that had the problems are the ones that didn't have yeah. enough calls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you if you have, if you're at a slow station, there's always all kinds of personal problems between guys. Yeah, shift wars and all that bullshit. Yeah, it's just stupid stuff. So, at the end of the day, pretty flipping awesome. Beautiful. Well, Dicky, closing words. I think. What I'll leave you with is take care of yourselves and take care of each other because it can all change literally in an instant. Um, That's pretty much it. The only thing that's really important is that person sitting next to you and the other people on your rig. And if you guys take care of guys and girls, take care of one another uh, mentally and physically and emotionally and everything else, then you'll have a good career. And if you don't, um, it won't be as fulfilling and as satisfying as it has been for the four of us. That's all I got. Over to you, fat ass. <laughs> Speaking of love. <laughs> I mean, you. hey, Joe, you have something to say? <laughs> Thank you, son. <laughs> uh, I say for any guy that's new in another career, um, really take care of yourself, cherish your job, um, it goes by in a blink of an eye. I've been on almost 20 years and I'm on a downhill slide where I'm looking at thinking about retirement already. Um, you're going to go 25, you think? I'm going to go 30. 30? If possible. If my body lets me. But Those childbearing hips might get in the way. I, exactly. <laughs> One's going to be made of ceramic <laughs> before too long. <laughs> but to echo off what Richard said is... Uh, you know, you need to watch out for one another. Take care of your your body and mind. Um, when I first started pursuing this career, and I never thought about the mental aspect of it um, and how much of a part it plays on our lives. Um, go in informed, 
and aware and uh, don't be afraid to talk about things that are bothering you. Don't hide it. And let me let me qualify that real quick. That taking care of one another, that's not, hey, put your helmet on before we go on this fire. It's the emotional and the mental things. It's like, hey, how are you doing after this call? Or, hey, let's go, let's go work out together. Or, hey, maybe you don't need to have that third helping of bacon or whatever it is. Take care of each, <laughs> you just, take care of each other that way. Terry's not agreeing that just, last statement. Uh, we don't really save each other from fire, <laughs> but we have this more often than not save each other, save ourselves from ourselves. And that's the hardest thing to do. And I guess it's the most thankless too. But that's what I mean by take care of each other, look out for each other, not just on fires, but in everything else. Well, you actually hit a really good point. I haven't really thought about it this so way. So good. So we talk about the, like the peer support, for example. We talk about being there. We talk about you know trying to break the stigma. But really what it boils down to is... If you have a cohesive crew of two or three or four, that's it. The same way as you're not going to change the world voting some shitbag in a blue or red tie in this current system that we have now. You change the world by stepping outside your front door and helping your community. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, you know, you've actually nailed it really where if you have a, a crew that you invest in and you make sure that your fellow firefighter or your engineer or your captain or lieutenant that you are all doing well and each crew does that, we're going to change things. But if you're not looking out and you don't understand the sisterhood, brotherhood concept, I hate the whole thing about, oh, the fire helmet is tradition. No, the fire helmet isn't fucking tradition. The fire helmet should have been gone a long time ago, in my opinion. There's so many better advances in technology. That's not tradition. That's history. Tradition is brotherhood and sisterhood and actually giving a shit about people. And that's what we need to find. No one gives a fuck if you've got a mustache and a leather helmet. We care if you actually turned. <laughs> Joe flips me off. We care if you if you understand that Some the British thing. <laughs> they want to wear those motorcycle helmets into fires. We do because they actually yeah. make more sense. But we care if the person in the the seat in the rig with you is hurting and you actually get it. Like you know, people just get a fucking boner about whether there's a pistol grip on a nozzle, but they miss the fact that their person sitting next to them is about to stick a gun in their mouth. So we need to reframe what tradition and you know, brotherhood and sisterhood actually means and, and look out for each other. There's three other people in that rig, if you're you know, in a regular rig, just take care of each other. And if we all do that, then we'll change the fire service. Well, this career is definitely not, you're not punching the clock. As, you know, they say not to take your work home with you. Well, what are you punching if you're not punching the clock? The clown. The clown. <laughs> That's why it's like this. <laughs> My right forearm is like two inches bigger. I don't get it. It's but, like Deadpool's leg. <laughs> <laughs> That's Dickie's legs. Really? <laughs> yeah. But in all in seriousness, is that you're not punching a clock. You're not like in any other career where you don't build the relationships that we do. You know, look at how long you've been gone. This crew was not together for That's years. Been, yeah, twelve years yeah. since I left. But the cohesiveness that we developed and the you know the, the sense of family, you know, is what the tradition is. You know, taking care of each other, you know, having two clowns in your wedding, you know, inviting the, uh, I don't know what you call Terry, the groomsmen over there, but, you know. An old clown. True. But, uh, <laughs> old clown, <laughs> old punching clown. 
But I'm saying though, is it, it, that's the tradition, like you mentioned. You know, you develop that family, that sense of family, you know, sense of unity. And I don't think there's any other career that's like that. Yeah. You know, except maybe the military. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to I have my brothers in law enforcement. To some degree, they have those relationships, but they're not working 24 no, hours. They don't. They don't spend the same time like no. we do. No. It, it, I would like to leave you with this, James. Or if there's a guy out there listening that's like likes being a fireman, but he doesn't feel like he's in the right spot, or you know, mm. take the responsibility to find yourself in a better place. Don't make it about. Um, things aren't going well for you in this location. Change your situation. Find somebody that believes in training that's going to challenge you, that's going to push you, that's going to um, light, light a fire underneath your ass. And, uh, you know, forget about yourself for a while, but start thinking about the people you serve. You know? You got to get back to why fire service is a service it wasn't it wasn't intended to be a a, a cakewalk uh two hundred thousand dollar job for everybody that wanted to sign up in the back back in the day these guys all had to have second jobs because that's most pay. of the fire service today we're just yes. southern it california didn't, it, didn't, it did not it did not be. pay well enough no the guys that i that i came on the job with had lawn routes they used to mow lawns mm-hmm. you know if you're in a place today where you are uncertain whether you think you, you you know you're in the right place. Find somebody out there that you respect and try to get on their crew. Push yourself. Change your change your your situation. Be be proactive in it. Don't sit back and go, "Woe's me! I got this great job, but I, I'm really not being fulfilled." Be proactive on it, man. Don't don't sit back and wait on it because your career is going to fly by. And if uh, you got two choices, either make make your situation better or find a different job. That's my advice to you because this job is way too valuable to waste. It's it's a it's a treat. Yeah, it's not about you. It's about it's the person about sitting next to you, and it's about the public. It's a service job, fire it's service. Service. I mean, if you're if you're not feeling it, then you either need to move to a different crew. Or you need to find a different job. I would say the same if you're a chief position too. If you're not feeling taking care of your people, it's time to step down. That someone well, I mean, understands it, it, that. Eventually, you know, if you're in the right place, being fostered in the right direction, you're going to develop all of those other traits. You're going to realize that it's it's about selflessness. It's like I would say this: if you're a father, that you'll understand this. If you're a mother, you'll understand this. It's about being selfless. So you look around and you go, these are the two three or two or three people that I work with that I need to make sure that their needs are always met before mine. And if we're on a call, we take care of all the public needs first before ours. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way it is. And if you do that, you'll develop a certain amount of... Uh, love for the job and pride and uh and when you leave the leave at the end of the shift you feel pretty damn good about the the work you did you know and and you'll develop great relationships with people that you work with you'll have uh 
lifelong friendships. You'll have all the wonderful things in life that we all seek. But you got to invest time and you got to work at it. It doesn't just, you know, you just don't fall off the turnip truck and land on the fire service in a great place. You say the turd truck? Turn up, turn Because uh, I think so. I've truck. been workplaces where it was a turn truck. That people turn up truck. But you know, if if you're if you're not sure, change your change your paradigm a bit. Mm-hmm. And um, life is life is too short to be in a job that you're that you're calling a job. Mm-hmm. If you're calling this a job, you're in the wrong place. It's, it's a profession or a calling, even. Yeah, it's more of a lifestyle too. Mm-hmm. It's a, everything it's we do a, outside affects what we do. On the job as well. It's well a, that's good. I mean, how many professions? It's a, it's a service. You're providing a service for people out there. I've said this you know, a lot. How many professions take their vacation days to go and do a training class that only pertains to the job they do? Not many. Ours yeah. is one of them. So. It's a service, man. You're there to serve. Serve means you put other people before yourself. That's what serving is. So... If you're too selfish of an individual to wrap that around your brain, then you should go to work for Wall Street or learn how to sell real estate or whatever else you want to do in life. But service is taking care of the public and taking care of the people that you work with. Absolutely. And that's it. Well, thank you. Where's the wisdom man by? Mm-hmm. All right. Truck one, Anaheim. Part two. C shift. Done. Mm-hmm. I just thought about Terry's like Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not baby Yoda. Not baby like Yoda. Like really fucking old Yoda. Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> baby Yoda. Baby Yoda would be about that. <laughs> yeah.